skin. Once they rode camels in the desert, once they drove caravans across Eastern Europe, they eat screams and drink pain. And they've noticed that little girl. Shh, it's the film flavors. Hi guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. That's right. Time for a second deep dive. And Chris, are you ready for another big one? I am. I'm ready for (laughs) Dr. Sleep's big one. (laughs) Mike Flanagan's big one. Mike Flanagan's big one. Finally. So uh, yeah, we're here to talk about Dr. Sleep. And like we had said before, this is the first time that we have done a hot take on a movie and we're coming back to do a deep dive for it. That's right. And I can't think of a better first contender than uh, Dr. Sleep. That's right, because we were both super impressed with this movie when it came out. And yeah. I know that we're both itching to get the conversation started, right? That's right. So Dr. Sleep is a 2019 American supernatural horror film written and directed by Mike Flanagan, based on the 2013 Stephen King novel of the same name, which is a sequel to King's 1977 novel The Shining. The film also serves as a direct sequel to the 1980 film adaptation of The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and combines elements of both the film and the original material. Dr. Sleep stars Ewan McGregor as Danny Torrance, dealing with his abilities and his childhood trauma as an adult. The film also features Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, and Cliff Curtis in strong supporting roles. The score for the film was composed by the Newton Brothers and features elements from The Shining. Warner Brothers began developing a film version shortly after the novel's release, and writer-producer Akiva Goldsmith even finished a script, but the studio couldn't secure a budget for the film. Then a little movie called It came along in 2017, bringing with it a massive box office and a renewed interest in Stephen King's work. Mike Flanagan was hired to rewrite the script and film the movie, and production began in Georgia in September of 2018. Flanagan has said that he wanted to create a movie that would reconcile the differences between the novel and its original adaptation. On why he was interested in the project, Flanagan stated, It touches on themes that are most attractive to me, which are childhood trauma leading into adulthood, addiction, the breakdown of a family, and the after effects decades later. And I'm sure that we are going to have some things to say about Flanagan's work dealing with that particular quote later on in this episode. That is correct. Yeah. So let's do it. Well, hi there, listeners. This is Dr. Sleep. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. Not many ride the bus this far north. You're running away from something. I'm running away from myself, I guess. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. The 
world is a hungry place, a dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These empty devils, they'll eat what shines. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow, hi there. coming. Where are we going? There's a place. You sure you want to do this? I'm ready. Yes, you run, dear. And then I will find you. And you will scream for years. In 1980, Danny Torrance and his mother Wendy live in Florida, still traumatized by their ordeal at the Overlook Hotel. Dick Halloran, played by Carl Lumbly, now a benevolent spirit, explains to Danny that the hotel's ghosts fed on his psychic ability, or his shining, and now that the hotel has been abandoned, the starving ghosts are pursuing Danny. Halloran teaches Danny to lock them in imaginary boxes in his mind. Meanwhile, across the country, the True Knot, a cult of psychics led by a woman named Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson, are hard at work extending their lifespans by consuming steam, a psychic essence released by torturing and killing those who have the shining, especially children. Years pass, and in 2011, Danny, now going by Dan, played by Ewan McGregor, has become a belligerent alcoholic, just like his father before him. Sick and tired, and after stealing money from a single mother with whom he had a one-night stand, Dan realizes he's hit rock bottom. He moves to a small New Hampshire town and befriends Billy Friedman, played by Cliff Curtis, who helps him to get an apartment. Billy becomes Dan's Alcoholics Anonymous sponsor, and Dan becomes a hospice orderly and uses his shining to comfort dying patients, who nickname him Dr. Sleep. He also begins receiving short, friendly telepathic communications from Abra Stone, played by Kylie Curran, on his blackboard wall, a young girl whose shining is even greater than his. Eight years later, in 2019, the True Knot are starving, as steam has become increasingly rare. They abduct a boy in Iowa and torture him to death for his steam. A teenage Abra senses the horrible event and alerts Dan, the message taking the form of the word murder appearing on his blackboard wall. Rose the Hat noticed Abra looking in, and sensing her great power and potential for steam, plans to hunt her down and extract it. Abra uses her abilities as a kind of GPS in order to find Dan in order to make a plan. She tells him she can track the cult if she touches the murdered boy's baseball glove, so they need to find out where he was buried. Dan refuses to help, telling her to suppress her shining in order to stay safe. That night, Rose projects her consciousness across the country and infiltrates Abra's mind, but is physically injured by a psychic trap set by her. Immediately after violently returning to her body after Abra's psychic trap, cult member Grandpa Flick dies of starvation, and Rose sends the remaining members after Abra. 
Convinced by Dick Halloran's spirit to help Abra, Dan tells Billy about the true knot, and with Abra's psychic help, they travel to the murder site and exhume the boy's body to retrieve his baseball glove. Upon attaining the glove that both the murdered boy and the members of the true knot had touched, Abra discovers that they are already on their way to abduct her, and they're getting close. The group recruits Abra's father, Dave, and have him guard Abra's body as she projects herself to a local campsite, luring the cult there instead of her home. Dan and Billy kill most of them with guns under the cover of nearby trees, but the last one dying, Snakebite Andy, played by Emily Lind, psychically compels Billy to shoot himself in the head. Dan is the last one standing, but unknown to him is that Rose's partner, Crow Daddy, played by Zahn McLarnon, tricked them and went straight for Abra's house. Abra is abducted and drugged mid-trance by Crow Daddy, who kills her father on the way out. While Crow Daddy is transporting Abra, Dan is able to shine into Abra and make Crow Daddy fatally crash his vehicle while leaving Abra unscathed. Enraged that her entire True Knot family has been killed, Rose consumed the cult's remaining steam supply to heal her wounds and make herself even stronger, and sets off to take Abra herself. Knowing that Rose will follow Abra to the ends of the earth to collect her and exact her revenge, Dan brings Abra to the abandoned Overlook Hotel, believing it will be just as dangerous for Rose as it is for them, if not more so. He starts the hotel's boiler and explores the dormant building, awakening it with his shining. He revisits the rooms where his alcoholic father, Jack Torrance, attempted to murder him and his mother, Wendy, under the Overlook's influence. At the hotel bar, Dan is greeted by Lloyd, a ghostly bartender bearing his father's image. The apparition attempts to coax Dan into taking a drink, but Dan refuses. When Rose arrives at the Overlook, Dan and Abra pull her consciousness into Dan's mind, resembling the hotel's sprawling, snowy hedge maze. As Abra distracts Rose in the maze, Dan tries to trap her in one of his imaginary boxes. Sensing she isn't where she thinks she is, Rose breaks the psychic connection, physically overpowers him, and begins consuming his steam. Exploring his psyche as he screams in pain, Rose senses that Dan isn't alone in his mind. Before she can act, Dan opens the boxes in his mind, releasing the overlooked starving ghosts. The spirits quickly overwhelm and consume Rose before turning to Dan and possessing him. Through him, the ghosts pursue Abra to room 237, where she informs them that Dan sabotaged the boiler. Dan, regaining control, tells her to save herself and leave as quickly as she can. Possessed again, he rushes to the boiler room but regains control before the hotel can make him deactivate it. In his last moment, Dan sees a vision of himself as a child being comforted by his mother, Wendy. Abra watches helplessly as the hotel burns down just as the authorities arrive. Later, safe at home, Abra talks to Dan's spirit. They assure each other that they'll both be okay, and Dan tells Abra to not hide her shine as he did. Before going downstairs to join her mother, Abra notices the ghost of the rotting woman from room 237 waiting for her in the bathroom. Abra walks confidently towards the spirit and prepares to imprison her, just as Dan had done before her. The End So Dr. Sleep premiered in Los Angeles on October 21st, 2019, opened in global markets on Halloween night, then officially in the United States on November the 8th. The film had slated an opening date of January 24th, 2020, and the pushed up date was seen by many as a vote of confidence in the film by the studio. 
In the US and Canada, the film was released alongside Last Christmas, Midway, and Playing With Fire, and it was initially projected to gross between 25 to 30 million on opening weekend alone. Instead, it grossed only 14 million that weekend, about half of what they had expected, Mm -hmm. getting upset by Midway for the top spot. Ultimately, Dr. Sleep would earn about 31.5 million in North America with a worldwide total of 72 million against a budget of 55 million. So, not a huge profit, but a profit nonetheless. Now, I will want to ask like, do you remember Last Christmas, Midway, or Playing with Fire? No. Like, if you were to say those titles, would you remember what those no, movies I, are? I, I was just like, do I rem- No. I mean, I, I know the movies, right? I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen any of those three, but yeah, I just, um, just. Further conversations about how this movie was completely ignored will happen in this con- in this episode, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, following its debut, it was projected that the film would lose Warner Brothers roughly $20 million. According to box office experts, whoever they are, Warner Brothers overestimated The Shining's influence on younger audiences who might not care as much about Kubrick's film. 67% of audience opening weekend were over the age of 24. They also say that the decision to release the film in early November after Halloween was a mistake, a huge mistake. They also take into account the two and a half hour runtime, but it and its sequel were equally as long. That's true. And I do think they have a point about the younger audiences. This isn't really like a date night horror movie. You know, it's not like the schlocky B movie type of horror movie that people generally want to go to on dates. Plus, it wasn't really obviously, at least on the poster title, that it was even related to The Shining, really. You know, it's just Dr. Sleep and it has Ewan McGregor. And I guess younger audiences may not be, you know, super into a 1980 horror movie. I mean, directed by Kubrick. You know what I mean? So I think, I mean, because I kind of remember some of the trailers and TV spots, right? And they had Red Rum in it, but that was really like the only thing that connected it to The Shining. They didn't even use some of like the musical cues or things like that. I do remember a big push on social media for this movie before it came out and even hearing advertisements on podcasts, right? So I, they were even going after the older crowd in its advertising campaign. They were in smartly. And I think that's because of there's possible constraints based on how much work Flanagan had to do to get this off the ground anyway, and get the blessing from Stephen King. Mm-hmm. I think it would have at that point, at least been disrespectful towards Stephen King to use Kubrick's film and clips from it to market this one. That's right. Cause I mean, I think that, I mean, even the, the most, you know, unseasoned Stephen King fan knows about the, you know, antagonizing feelings he has about the shining and Kubrick. Right. So, I mean, he's alive. Kubrick's not, they had to appease somebody at this particular point. Nevertheless, it, it's box office gross was considered to be a disappointment as compared to the other King adaptions released in 2019, like it chapter two and pet cemetery. However, despite the box office performance, Dr. Sleep enjoyed a resurgence of interest and popularity when it began streaming in 2020, including a significant director's cut released on Blu-ray as well as streaming services at the same time. That's right. Dr. Sleep has a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes currently and is certified fresh. It holds an audience score of 89%. The site's consensus reads, Dr. Sleep forsakes the elemental horror of its predecessor for a more contemplative sequel that balances poignant themes against spine-tingling chills. Contemplative? Poignant? Oh, 
Buzzwords. I don't know. Did I say that word right? (laughs) (laughs) The film received generally favorable reviews upon release. Brian Talirico of RogerEbert.com gave the film three out of four stars, stating, Flanagan was tasked with making a sequel to a film that stays loyal to a book that ignores the changes made in the first movie. That ain't easy. And while one can sometimes feel Flanagan struggling to satisfy both King and Kubrick fans when he really should be trusting his own vision... He's talented enough to pull off this blend of both legacies. You're here. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone gave the film three out of five stars, saying Dr. Sleep relies way too much on borrowed inspiration and eventually runs out of, pardon the word, steam. Ugh. <laughs> Barry Hertz of Globe and Mail gave it 2.5 out of four stars, writing, whichever way you prefer to take to the Overlook Hotel, there are better directions available than those prescribed by Dr. Sleep. Which ones? Tell me. I know. Fuck you, Barry. And finally, BBC's critic Nicholas Barber gave the film four out of five and stated, credible in his characterization, rich in its mythological detail, and touchingly sincere in his treatment of alcoholism and trauma, the film is impressive in all sorts of ways. But its greatest achievement is that it makes The Shining seem like a prequel, a tantalizing glimpse of a richer and more substantial narrative. I really like that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an excellent quote and a very good review, you know, and um, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that the reviews are so mixed, right? I was scrolling through Rotten Tomatoes and reading some of like the, the snippets of reviews they have on there, and I it doesn't seem as mixed. It seemed like it was unfavorably reviewed, but I don't know. Yeah, I have problems with all that. So it was nominated for Best Screenplay uh, at the Bram Stoker Awards. And it was nominated for Best Wide Release Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Kylie Curran, and Best Screenplay, along with Best Score at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, although it only won Best Supporting Actress by Rebecca Ferguson. And a well-deserved win that is, too. Yeah. So there are other awards that it was nominated for, mostly for like film festivals and maybe like local like top lists, right? And Re- Rebecca Ferguson, like by and large, like cleared all those and won them, so... Prior to the film's release, Warner Brothers had enough confidence in the film that they hired Flanagan to script a prequel with a working title, Halloran, focusing on the character of Dick Halloran. Following the disappointing box office performance of Dr. Sleep, the future of that project is very unclear. Although Flanagan also confirmed that he was interested in directing a sequel focused on Abra Stone and that he had asked King, who was open to the idea. I'm actually more excited for that than I would be for a Dick Halloran show. I disagree. Oh really? Yeah, I would rather I would rather see Dick Halloran's like coming of age story and his inner workings into being an adult dealing with the shining, right? I think that's a much better story. To me, if they were to continue Abra Stones, it would get a little too like X-Men-y, maybe. Like, I don't know about that because like but I have like a weird thing with prequels anyway. I'm like, let's move forward because we all already knows what happens with that character. I know he dies, I know how he dies, I know how senselessly it is if it's in the King Kubrick universe, mm-hmm. the hybrid universe, versus like Abra Stone, at least she might try and seek out others with the shining. At least she might even maybe who knows? Hunt down others that are in this cult or whatever around the world. I don't know. It could be something completely new and different, knowing Stephen King. I mean, if it was Abra going after other members of the True Knot or like variations of that, yeah, I think that'd be good. But I, I feel like, and I think we touched on this in our conversation on The Shining, is that I don't think we know enough about Halloran. I don't think we've seen enough of him. And I really would like to, to see more of that character and know like what made him the good person that he is and what he had to go through. What if we got both? I think that'd be great. If they could do both in the same movie, I think that'd be perfect. 
Maybe Dick Halloran could come and talk to Abra at some point. Either way, I mean, I would like to see a continuation of either of those stories. And I know that we talked about in our Shining episode, you know, they're having the Overlook, right, series that's being created for HBO Max. And I think they could very easily put stories about Halloran into that, too, because he is a part of the Overlook. And now Abra is as well, if you're going to continue on in this thing. So, I mean, they could go in lots of directions with that. But we have to digress because we haven't really even talked about the movie yet. Uh, That's right. I mean, I think we've already digressed, or I have, so. (laughs) (laughs) But let's talk about this cast that they put together for this. Yeah, I think this cast is phenomenal. I think they did excellent casting across the board, starting with Ewan McGregor as Danny Torrance, you know, uh, almost like a thankless job in this because he's almost the vehicle for everything else to happen surrounding him when the real star of the show is, is, I would guess, in my view, is probably like Abra and Rose the Hat, you know? Yeah. Um, but he does an excellent job here, and I believe that he's Danny Torrance, you know, from both the book and the movie The Shining. How do you feel about them calling him Dan? I feel like that's a logical evolution from being called Danny as a child. Yeah. Danny just feels so juvenile. I know, but it just like I that's how I think of that character, right? So every time I call him Dan, like I'm waiting for another like syllable to come or something, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like someone punching in bars isn't really a Danny. I don't know. <laughs> I was recently trying to convince a friend to a friend and listener of this podcast, Erica, to watch this show, and she says, I like you and McGregor. I'm a I'm a McGreg head or something like that. Head. Yeah, I kinda like that term. I think I'm gonna continue it. God. How do you feel about Ewan McGregor? I mean, we've seen him in lots of movies, right? I mean, and I I can't think of many movies that I dislike him in. I can't think of anything I disliked him in. I mean, I just he's he seems like a, he's a good actor. I I just I like it when he's on screen. I like the characters that he plays and how he plays them, and I especially like him playing Dan Torrance. Yeah. So I I just think he's he's a really good um, continuation of a character that. I think in Kubrick's film, we don't really get to know that much about. So we also get to see his like younger self in this movie and kind of like flashbacks, especially the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. and Roger Dale uh, or sorry, Roger Dale Floyd plays a young Danny Torrance. And I thought they did some good casting, honestly with, with him and his mother, um, you know, going back to the time of the shining 1980 and casting someone that really is like speaks to the way he looked as a child, as well as the way his mother acted and looked really, um, and that was a- Alex Esso. Yes. Alex Esso as, as Wendy Torrance. So yeah, I really like Alex Esso a lot too. She's in a horror movie called Starry Eyes, which is very good. And she was also featured very briefly in Haunting of Bly Manor. I think she played the kids' deceased mother, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like she's, she pops up from time to time, but she looked incredibly like Wendy, right? Oh yeah. And like they do a quick take of her in the bathroom when, uh, Jack Torrance is supposed to be coming through the door kind of like as a flashback and mm-hmm. they completely reshot that or whatever just for the snippets that, that they show of it and it was exactly the performance yeah, you know so yeah but we have to move on and to uh, you know Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat which to me was just I had no expectations going into this about, you know, loving a villain or being so intrigued by a villain, but I was blown. Yeah, I think like I'm trying to remember back to our hot take on this particular movie when it was released way back that November. And I'm fairly certain the like 45 minutes to an hour that we talked about it was spent gushing about Rebecca Ferguson, right? Because she really is just phenomenal in this movie. I, I can't think of a horror performance in recent years that can even come close close to topping this she was rose the hat for this film yeah i uh 
I mean, and it was just like, it was so commanding and every scene that she was in was so good. Like she really embodied that character and went full, like full force with it. Like to me, it's an Oscar caliber performance. So larger than life. You believe a Rose the Hat really exists somewhere out there. Yeah. I mean, she was just, just so good. Like if, if, if I had like unlimited amount of time to sit and gush, that's what I would do just over and over again about this performance. I love it so, so much, but I mean, I'll leave it at that. But continuing the tradition of these films, uh, of which there are only two, I guess, is, you know, hiring some really good child actors. And Kylie Curran is no exception to that. She did an amazing job as Abra Stone, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that she like she really made me feel like she was just some like average teenager who is, you know, sort of dealing with an ability that she's had all her life and one that she's not very scared of. Right. Totally mm-hmm. different from what, you know, the character of Danny Torrance has in The Shining, which is different than it was in the novel. Right. But we have in The Shining uh, a, a young child who's doing his best to sort of like hide or not use an ability. And she's the complete opposite. Right. And, and I think that her performance was was great. I think she acted like a like a, a young adult, you know, mm-hmm. and she kind of resisted the whole idea of hiding herself or not being herself. Right. You know, with exceptions to how much she would show or talk about it with her parents. But with her pen pal, that was like her only outlet and her pen pal, her psychic pen pal being Danny Torrance, mm-hmm. you know, so she wasn't going to she wasn't going to lose that. I think that character presents sort of, to me, some of the best themes of Dr. Sleep, right? And Mm -hmm. we can get into that later on. But I mean, I I think that she really carries a huge chunk of this movie. I think that she and Rebecca Ferguson carry the largest chunks of the movie, right? I know that like Ewan McGregor is supposed to be the main character, but he sort of loses the show to these two actresses in this movie. A little bit, but he he does everything he's supposed to and more, you know, because... You know, every time he is supposed to be going through something, you know, you believe it too. There are moments in the story where he's at his lowest and he is at his highest, mm-hmm. you know, of his character that we've seen in in either of the movies, you know, as well as, you know, moments of temptation and despair, you know, and he does, he does this perfectly and you believe it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not discounting his work in this movie at all. I think that Ewan McGregor, like we said, is always good. And he certainly plays people with addiction well, right? I think we've seen him do that multiple times. Um, So I I feel like he knows how to do that and and knows how to do it well. So, yeah, I mean, not discounting him at all. I just, I think that, like, by and largely, I'm sort of focused on the two women in this movie. That's true. And I am too. But speaking of strange addictions, let's talk a little bit about Cliff Curtis as Billy Freeman, Dan's friend and sponsor. <laughs> I love Cliff Curtis. Cliff Curtis. Cliff Curtis. <laughs> I would write his name over and over again in my journal if I could. Yeah, I don't I don't know that he was like irreplaceable as far as like casting there. No. You know, but he did a great job as as usual. Cliff Curtis is, is certainly no slouch. Yeah, he's a good actor, right? And I mean, I'm usually surprised by him and his range, you know. Um, I think he's he plays this role like very sort of like sad and understated and endearing, and he creates a really good character and and someone that Dan re like someone that Dan needs very much, right? And so it's he's a good character and a good actor. I love Cliff, Cliff Curtis. I think he's hot. Yeah, and of course he was in Sunshine, and uh, that kind of rounds out our main speaking cast. Although we have some some big hitters kind of in the the supporting roles, the more supporting roles, including. Carl Lumbly as Dick Halloran, um, you know, the late head chef of the Overlook Hotel who was uh, taught uh, Danny really that it was called The Shining. And, you know, uh, of course, previously played by Scatman Crothers in The Shining, uh, Carl Lumbly had a a hard role to do here. He had a hard Mm -hmm. job, right, to take 
you know, to take on that role and fill those gigantic shoes because for both of us, I think Scatman Crothers performance and character in the shining was our favorite, you know, but I loved Carl Lumbly in this role. I thought he did an excellent job. Yeah. It's really hard to find somebody who can embody the same kind of mannerisms and acting performance that, that Scatman Crothers had. And I think Carl Lumbly really did that. I mean, so we have, you know, um, Roger Dale Floyd who played the young Danny right in this, and we have Alex Sisso and, you know, I think that they are made to look very much like their original characters. And yeah, they, they have some moments where they, they act like them as well, but this particular performance, I really, believed it right like yeah. i think there was a, an excellent choice on flanagan whoever cast this movie's part to to choose him so mm-hmm. we also have you know some of the the true not like zon mclarnon as crow daddy and emily allen lind as snakebite andy who i loved that character in this film and it's always fun to see uh carl struken as uh in this film he played a uh, grandpa flick kind of the, the the oldest member of the true not that's right lurch himself mm-hmm and Emily Emily Allen Lind uh, is from The Babysitter and The Babysitter Killer Queen, right? She had a smaller part in the first one, but a much larger part in the sequel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I also liked that character a lot of Stink About Andy. And I think that Emily Lind really like brought it home. I mean, it's so I oftentimes, you know, will gravitate toward actresses over actors anyway. I think it's just in my nature. Right. But uh, like these performances by these women are really good. And I thought that some of those early scenes with Snakebite Andy, especially the ones that she's in the theater, right. Mm-hmm. Are excellent. Like she's, she's very good. And I feel kind of underused in this movie, but yeah, well, it was, it could have been easily, you know, a two parter or like a four hour or something, you mm-hmm. know, I just wanted more. And I always like it when movies will leave me wanting more in like a good way you know and this is one of those we don't usually spend this much time going through cast but this is such a hugely well-rounded cast especially when you compare it to the original shining which was much more focused on just you know three characters that's right yeah so i mean like the shining really like four characters if you want to throw in dick halloran right but that's that's it that pretty much rounds out the cast and the cast in this movie really create a whole world and there's so many people and you know whether they have like one line or no lines like they they create memorable characters in this members of the true knot that don't say a word are still memorable and i think that's a pretty fantastic feat from an acting standpoint especially for some of the bit roles because uh one in particular i want to talk about really two in particular would be jacob tremblay as uh, bradley trevor the the baseball boy right mm-hmm. the victim of the true knot and he only has like one or two lines but then he has to scream a whole bunch and he was just so believable and so, uh, there was a lot of test audiences and stuff that had to have that recut you know, in different ways. The director's cut is, is different than the, the actual theatrical cut too. Right. And it was even more hardcore for original test audiences and people just believed the shit out of that. Uh, and there's more stories behind that performance performance as well. But uh, he did just an excellent job for his little small role but pivotal role in the film god bless that kid really i mean like when he's in a movie he acts his ass off (laughs) and he's he's a young kid so i mean he's got a huge career ahead of him anytime i see him in a movie he's just like so good right in room i mean i think that he's fantastic i i think he was nominated for an oscar for that movie too although i should probably look that up not sure i mean i know that what's her name was nominated for room but I kind of feel like he was, but I that could be wrong. Either way, he deserved to be nominated. And maybe I'm just like casting or nominating people on my brain, which is fine. But, but yeah. 
the last performance that I really wanted to mention before we move on to just talking about the story a little bit is uh, Henry Thomas, who we talked about in last week's episode of The Shining for his role in this, as well as his role we mentioned in um, The Haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. you know, as the father and how we kind of saw Jack Torrance and how he he should or could have acted according to the original material of The Shining versus the film. But he played, of course, the bartender or the apparition who calls himself Lloyd, but resembles Dan's late father, Jack Torrance. And he did such a good job because, you know, they had to make a choice between trying to like do some sort of digital double, which they didn't want to do. And they also didn't want to do something that uh, was, was just imitation. Right. So they wanted someone that could, you know, pick up on the cadence and kind of, act towards the way Jack Nicholson was trying to do and be reminiscent of it without going into parody. And I thought he yeah. did an excellent job here. Yeah. The last thing you want is to go over the top, right? I mean, cause yeah. Jack Nicholson went over the top enough in the shining and it's too easy to do that. Right. Like you say. And I, I think that he really like struck a really good, like tone and chord in that particular scene right he doesn't have a lot to do in the theatrical version right i think they add some extra points to this in the director's cut a little bit yeah but yeah i mean he i think we talked about it in our hot take too like how surprised we were that it was him and that he did such a good job like sort of embodying that character i didn't realize it was henry thomas when i first saw it i was shocked when i saw the credits yep so yeah i mean it was it was pretty good and that's that's a really it's a pivotal scene for that character of dan right he has to make a choice at that point and have his father like be the one to present it to him right it's just like it really brings like the emotional sense of this movie full circle yeah so let's get into the the story a little bit yeah so one of the hugest difference between the director's cut and the theatrical version is that the director's cut is broken up into acts yes it's actually uh six chapters and uh, of course, starting with a prologue, which I'm not including in the in the chapters, but uh, this is all based on the director's cut, like Robert just said. And there's not too much of a difference. Most of it is extended scenes, but there are some new ones as well. And we'll actually go over those differences uh, right after we go through the story. But we actually open with that prologue in 1980, kind of uh, we're led to believe is happening around the same time as the the events of the shining are happening and it's when the true knot is uh is hunting violet or has found violet and is uh violet gets to meet rose and we get to meet rose for the first time mm-hmm. and how they basically entrap these children and and hunt them so and in this particular scene rose the hat has sort of like you know come across a girl i mean obviously not happenstance like they planned it right yeah and they know that she has some sort of shine to her right because these are the children that they're going after and they pose a question to her as to what color a flower rose the hat has right yeah and while she's doing this the members of the true knot are sort of like closing in on the situation and eventually they get to overpower the girl and you know take her steam we don't see that I don't think. No, we see them hesitating and then finally coming in, you mm-hmm. know? And I mean, I think we're led to believe that that child is, you know, dead at that point. And mm-hmm. I think later on we see like a missing kids poster and it's Violet. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it does introduce us to the kind of the stakes of the film. Right. Exactly. Right from the get go. And then of course we see our first title card, chapter one, old ghosts. And all of this takes place in 1980. 
probably just a few months after the whole Violet and Rose and the, and the Shining, the events of the Shining happened. And we we're opening to Danny writing his, essentially writing a strike through the Overlook and, and nearing room 237. Excellently reshot, by the way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was completely blown away the first time I saw like even images of the Overlook and how almost exact it looked, right? Oh yeah. So much detail. Exactly. But it turns out to be a nightmare. Right. And so we're, we're in the aftertimes of The Shining and Danny and his mother, Wendy, are having to deal with the consequences, you know, of, of that trauma, essentially. And he is being hunted by the ghosts from The Shining um, after the, the hotel was closed and abandoned. Essentially, the, the sh- he had still some sort of psychic connection and they were able to find his way to him one at a time, presumably. And so eventually he, you know, he he's scared to shitless and doesn't really know what to do. But Dick Halloran, the spirit of Dick Halloran, you know, presents itself to him. And uh, we have this really sweet kind of teaching moment about trapping, trapping ghosts and empowering Danny with how to deal with it moving forward in his life. Yeah. And I, I really like that you use the word hunted, right? And um, I think also tormented is a really good word to use and how these ghosts are like treating Danny at this particular point. And his mother is completely beside herself. She doesn't know what to do. He's not speaking to her verbally. And I mean, like she's also trying to recover from the, the, the events of the overlook and um, that, that conversation with Dick Halloran sitting on that park bench. Right. I think is probably one of my favorite moments in this movie yeah i think the acting from that that child and carl lumbly is just fantastic when he's like look at this box study this box you know everything about this box right so like even in death dick halloran is still teaching danny like how to shine and the best ways to protect himself um when when danger seems not so physical like there still needs to be a teaching moment and i think that it's just perfect and you saw that Danny was kind of like you, you could almost tell that he was hoping things would be different and like they had been waking up from a nightmare but the nightmare continued for him mm-hmm. and he was kind of angry yeah you know and he said you told me they were just gonna be pictures mm-hmm. pictures in a book you said and then that's when you know Dick has to tell him you know it's you your shine is so much more powerful that your abilities literally made them real gave them that much power and so that's why it was that much more dangerous for you. And I didn't understand at the time, but this is how you deal with it moving forward. I think this is a good lesson for people in real life too. It's like, do not underestimate children's ability to understand the situations and the real world around them. Right. I think that as we, we, as people, especially as adults, like tend to gloss over and sugarcoat things for children in our lives. And we shouldn't do that. I mean, like teach them what real life is. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe things might've been a little different in the, in the shining. If maybe Dick Halloran hadn't said they're like pictures in a book to say, Hey, this place is really fucking bad, you yeah. know, but hindsight at least he's there to teach him how to trap things in boxes which he does and eventually gets to reconnect with his mom and that other really touching moment where they're watching tv and he comes back from the bathroom after traffic trapping the bathroom lady right and he like verbally speaks to his mom and the look on her face is very touching and yeah he says he's okay yeah they're gonna be okay yeah it's a good scene now we're flashing forward to 2011, right? So Dan, <laughs> as we see, has not adjusted as well as we had hoped. That's right. Based on the last few scenes. <laughs> and it's kind of a juxtaposition of different scenes going backward and forward in time with him in the night before in a bar, getting into a bar fight, hooking up with a lady, waking up with her and being sick, 
her having passed out either dead or sick herself. And then, you know, trying to get up and get ready to go, he has to steal her money because he he presumes that she spent his money on coke. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, he finds out there's a baby in the next room that she had, you know, and it was hungry. So he just like throws a bag of crackers its way or whatever and, you know, tries to head on out the door before Dick Halloran reappears and says, don't do that. Yep. Dick's always there to teach him. And not just any bar fight. That bar fight was pretty fucking gnarly. Right? Where he like picks up that fucking cue ball and like bashes that guy's face in with it. Yeah. I mean, Dan is very mad at life. And he, I mean, has had issues, obviously. I don't know. I mean, so like in the synopsis, you say that he's hit rock bottom. And that really is the point that he does hit rock bottom. And that's pretty easy to see right yeah it wasn't his own self-destruction that will come up it was the destruction of you know that woman and her child i think that helped and dick showing up that Mm -hmm. really you know will come up and so he just basically you know pays for a ticket and essentially moves on his way to start a new life but before he does we do get to see abra when she's a little girl having her birthday party yeah and it's our first little uh, taste as to what Abra is and what she can do, right? Yeah, and it's it's much further than what anyone else with the shining ability or so-called shine ability yet in the series, because she also has like telekinetic abilities, right? She's moving, you know, dozens of forks and knives and spoons around, and she's doing other things, playing the piano in her sleep, and mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of things that are beyond the the powers of. Um, you know, what we'd presume Dick or even Danny to have who Danny was supposed to be a kind of a powerhouse as well. If he hadn't kind of shut down his abilities early on. That's right. We get a huge juxtaposition between what Danny was as a kid and what Abra is as a kid at this particular moment. And like, she has this sort of like childlike sense of wonder about what she can do. And she's real proud of it. And she thinks that her parents are going to be proud of it, but they're kind of scared. Yep. Right. And then like throughout the movie, we'll sort of get other flashbacks and moments when her parents sort of know what she can do and who she is. And they'll even like ask her questions like, is someone going to survive and things like that? Mm -hmm. I mean, like they use her powers when it's easy for them to accept or they want to know something, but otherwise they tend to like sort of ignore. Yeah. Sweep it under the carpet Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, they have to treat her like she's their baby, their child and take care of her and view her that way. As soon as they start viewing her as an alien, they get uncomfortable and they know it. And so they're not going to bring it up and abra starts to recognize that too which she mentions to dan later on that's right she's a very smart child yeah so but we also get that amazing recruitment uh scene for snake bite andy we we are reintroduced to rose the hat in a the theater along with her partner crow daddy in this mm-hmm. film and uh they're watching snake bite andy uh you know essentially use her telepathic powers specialized i think different people have different yeah parts of this ability and her ability is to push she's uh, a pusher yeah so she can basically make people do what she tells them to do if they are of a certain amount of normal will power i guess i think that's one of my one of my favorite things about dr sleep as compared to the shining is that uh the people who shine sort of have this niche ability right And so it's different for everybody, right? Like everyone sort of has like the basics of it, but some people are better at other things, right? And I really like this particular ability, right? To be able to make people do things. If I had to choose, I would probably choose that. I've read whole horror books about like that Simon Says ability and Mm -hmm. it's it can be utterly terrifying. 
Yeah, I don't know what that says about me that I would choose that. I mean, it makes me sound like some sort of like nasty sociopath or whatever. But I mean, like it's neat. I think so. one I read was like there's really like a, a child's book, and it was about a kid on the playground that had this ability, and he would make kids like tight walk on a power line. Oh my god! Yeah, and 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 hurt themselves and break their arms and legs and and make people kill themselves and all sorts of stuff. But in this particular situation, Snakebite Andy or Andy as she's called at this particular moment is trying to like give comeuppance to pederasts. Right. Yeah. She was obviously abused as Mm -hmm. a kid and she's only 15. Right. In this role. And so she's basically, you know, to catch a predator vigilante and is, you know, kind of hunting these guys and catching them and meeting them in theaters, places like that. And then essentially getting close to them and telling them to fall asleep, feel no pain as she marks her snake bite scars deep into your cheek so that every time you look in the mirror and see them, you'll say, I love little children or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's her, her punishment to them. One of my favorite shots in Dr. Sleep is right after she does that, when she's walking out of the movie theater and you have the marquee in the background, right? And then, and then uh, Rose the Hat and Crow Daddy go and talk to her, right? Just the way that that is set up with her walking across the street and them stopping her with that marquee in the background is just so beautiful to me. I love it so, well, so much. Always, too, they're they're constructing the mythology of this because Crow Daddy tries to stop her first and she says, you want to leave me alone? And he hesitates. Mm-hmm. He's not as easily manipulated or hypnotized as, you know, the guy in the theater was, right. you know, and so, but he still stops and he looks upset or annoyed that he has stopped. And so at least he's aware of it. Yeah. But Rose, the hat comes and, uh, and she says, leave me alone. And you want to leave, let me go. And she says, Oh no, honey. <laughs> no, I don't, <laughs> you know? And so it just shows you what the level of, of kind of the pecking order of, of ability here is, you know, for, for us to under kind of, kind of understand later on in the story. But then we actually get into our second chapter, which is called Empty Devils. I like this chapter name a lot. Mm-hmm. And this is where they actually turn Snakebite Andy and we get to kind of see that they're not exactly human. No. Yeah. And so they're basically psychic vampires. Yeah. Which so, makes this one of the best vampire movies I've ever seen. I'm right there with you. Um, yeah. So they have convinced Snakebite Andy to, to sort of join their family, right? And they explain the true knot and they're all connected together. And we get to see why, you know, later on. But she has to go through this ritual to become a member of the true knot. And when she agrees that she is going to live long and eat well, they assemble the rest of the true knot and they bring out a canister, which I think is violet, right? I think so. And um, the canister is opened and Andy takes some steam, as does the rest of the true knot. And then eventually Andy sort of dies right in front of them and is reborn. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm now remembering that it's very much like making a vampire because it's Mm -hmm. not Andy that inhales the steam first. It's Rose and Rose feeds it to her. Gives it to her. You're exactly right. It's very much like a vampire. It's the exact same process, right? Yeah, that's I mean, that's super interesting. They really are like psychic vampires and it's. It's neat. I mean, like, obviously, they don't have to deal with the same kind of, like, mythology that vampires do, right? They do not live forever, as we see later on in the movie. They have to continue to feed, and they have to, like, try. They they will eventually expire. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, for the most part, they have a very long, almost unending life. That's true. And it's a, kind of alluded that Grandpa Flick, you know, has lasted through empires, ancient empires, mm-hmm. you know, the very least the Roman empire. 
Right. And so that's fascinating to me. I'd love to, to dig a lot deeper into that. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about having movies about DeCalron, which I still think would be good, and movies about Abra, but why why can't we have a movie that focuses on the villains for a little bit? Tell me they have so-, so many questions. They have connections with like the NSA and like government agencies, and they have all the money in the world, but they're still, you know, going around and like some of them very nice campers, you know, and cars yeah. and guns and tools and medicines and things like that. But it's like, where's the private jet? You know, you want <laughs> why are you why are you, I guess it's because it's easier to actually, you know, kidnap people in a camper than take them on a plane. But, you know. Yeah. So after Andy becomes part of the true knot, we get to see more of Dan. Right. And he has left town after that. And that rock bottom moment, he arrives in Fraser, New Hampshire, and he immediately meets Billy and joins AA. That's right. So um, he finds his saving grace in this sort of nondescript town that's away from everything that he needed to be away from. Yeah. And it's a really good first step because everything kind of happens very quickly for him. Luckily, because he finds Billy within the first five or 10 minutes that he's there, presumably. And then he gets an apartment and gets into AA all within like the same 24 hours, I think. So it was just like the ideal, you know, change in his life that he needed. And then he gets a job. Mm -hmm. Of course, he uses his talent. He opens up a little bit and uses his talent to get that job, but he gets it nonetheless. And of course, that job interview is the exact same office that yep. his father was interviewed in for the shining it's just a great cool callback for those that have a good eye but also uh well played by uh bruce greenwood yeah i really really enjoyed that scene a lot too because i when i saw this in the theater for the first time and i saw that office like immediately i was like oh my god it's like fucking Stuart allman's <laughs> office you know so i mean i like i like when you get little easter eggs and callbacks and stuff like that and i hope that a lot of people noticed it too i'm sure that most fans of the shining did yeah but yeah once he gets this job and he's sort of like settled in as an orderly he he very quickly, you know, falls into his sort of like, quote unquote, doctor sleep position, right? He um, sees a cat that's about to go into someone's room. He's trying to stop that cat. And so like the guy was like, oh, the cat's here. So I know it's time for me to die. When the cat comes to visit you, you know, it's your end. And so Dan is able to sort of like guide him into death, right? Which Mm -hmm. I think is incredibly touching. I'm starting to tear up right now thinking about it. Yeah, we get two scenes in the movie showing him him helping these these people in this old folks home to pass on sharing old memories and songs yeah and his view of their families waiting for him and it's beautiful and i get chills just thinking about it because it's such a wonderful idea i mean like literally like the tears are welling up because i remember that very first scene where he's guiding that man into death and that man's last lines are like i can see my wife right it's just so incredibly touching to me and i just like can't stand it like every time you know i watch that scene i just like just lose it i have to pause it and go have a good hard cry just that those are the the perfect last lines, you know, perfect final words that people can say as I see my wife, right? Mm-hmm. I just love it. It's so good. But it also shows us how positive these abilities can be used. You know, he's able to really handhold them spiritually and mentally and physically, you know, kind of into the next, you know, journey and and kind of impress upon them kind of psychically to be calm and happy and and show them that there is, you know, something after. You know, and, and what a wonderful thing to experience, right? When you've mm-hmm. lived your entire life, like being afraid of a gift that you have to find a way to like use it to help people, you know, and like you've lived this troubled life and you've sort of become the person that you don't want to be most in life. And then to have this huge recovery and to be able to like help people move on, I think is incredibly touching and a, a really good moment for that character. It's one of the best 
moments in the film, I think, and especially for Dan and his character. Yeah, I think that I'm, I think it really like shapes who he is. And as we know, we have another time jump later on. You know, we we see how it hasn't affected that, but mm-hmm. before but, that jump in time, we have a like a connection between our two main characters. Yeah, because he's been using his abilities, he caught the attention of Abra as a little girl, you know, who just lived through her birthday party and levitation of all the spoons and forks and knives and everything mm-hmm. else and terrorizing her parents privately. But um, you know, she says hello on his blackboard. And uh he says hi. It was friendly, it was short, and he he can sense that it's not malevolent and he feels like he's open enough to it. And apparently, you know, we time jump to 2019 and they've been pen palling for eight years. That's right. And I mean, it's a big time for Dan. He's getting a good like eight year AA coin. So, I mean, he's he's stayed true to the things that he set out that he wanted to do and the, the man he wanted to become. And I think he's happy with that. I think that if he were to spend the rest of his life in that town, being an orderly, being Dr. Sleep, that he had come to be known with these people, he would have been completely happy with that. Yeah, I'd like to think that he had eight years of peace, you know? Yeah. I would have liked to see him start a family, you know, or something like that. But oh, I think that's really out of character for Dan Torrance. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm I'm not quite sure that he wants to be a father. I think that maybe by the end of this movie he realizes that he could have been, but yeah. I think it I, I think at that 8-year point he's still too scared to even do any of that. Yeah. So at that point we're cutting to what the true knot is up to and they're still on the hunt for, you know, fresh young things with the steam and uh they find a uh the baseball boy, right? And uh he gets a home run straight to heaven. <laughs> but we also get that juicy danny lloyd cameo who of course played the original danny uh torrance from the first film and he's uh he's talking about the kid like oh he's a natural he's gonna get recruiters soon and blah 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 and he has multiple lines and then it Mm -hmm. just cuts away but he was the original he always seems to know what the pitcher is gonna do yeah yeah yeah. so yeah i think we sort of get the idea that they like they were tracking this kid too right and they traveled all to to get him and um I think that this this scene, the, this torture scene, is really well done and scary, and incredibly off putting, without being too too violent. Well, yeah, and it has to serve a major purpose in the story, which is what is at stake, and so it shows us as much as it can to modern audiences what they do to children, and they torture them horrifically. With knives and sharp objects, even in the book, I think she pulls a needle from her hat and sticks it under their fingernails to make them yep. even more in pain because pain purifies steam, theoretically. Uh-huh. And they all feed on him and then they store the rest, you know, and uh, they're disappointed they didn't get more, but they bury him and move on. But this is the scene that a lot of test audiences reacted negatively to. And even after all the heavy editing where they really don't show anything. No. The audience has still complained, and and I've seen some Amazon reviews of this film where they've turned it off and written a one-star review because a child was getting tortured. I have seen worse movies where children are physically tortured with actual blood, right? I think... I think it's a, this is a testimony to Jacob Tremblay's acting abilities in this particular moment because he's so believable. Don't watch Sleepwalkers. I mean... Or what was that? Before I Wake or whatever? I, I don't saying. know. It even is worse with Georgie. Oh my god, yeah, that movie made me ball when he like had his arm ripped off. And this, I mean, this is still like it's it's off-putting and hard to watch, but yeah, it shows his profile in the theatrical cut 
and the screams he's making and he's an incredibly good actor and it's the performance that sells it and the sounds really and then what they do and they're sucking all the steam from him you know and then uh in the director's cut it actually goes to a full face frontal close-up of him complete Mm -hmm. change in shot and shows the blood splattering on his face which is a little bit more but still not really showing anything which is probably a good choice but i was i'm still maybe i'm just like i'm deep in horror you know so i i'm kind of i don't know to me this is not shocking (laughs) at all like on on a scale of being shocked by a scene that's like at a four Yeah, I mean, like, I was, I remember being shocked watching it because I knew the scene was coming from having read the book. More emotionally shocking than it is viscerally. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, like, if they would have gone in a position to where it was extra violent, extra bloody, like, I wouldn't have been shocked by it. The fact that it was so minimally done and all based on, like, acting and sounds and Mm -hmm. some, some small visual cues just made it harder to watch, right? Yeah. And I know that, I mean, if you're not expecting something like that, then... Yeah, it can be shocking, but they they've already killed one kid in this movie, right? Yeah. A cute little girl. But so we I didn't mean, see any of that. Yeah. Right, but I mean like you like you said earlier, it gave stakes, right? You mm-hmm. know that children are in danger in this movie and how much they will suffer. And I think that a movie that will like avoid or disregard the stakes once they've set them up, right? Is bad. Like if you're going to set these things up, you have to follow through with them. And if they don't have this particular moment where they kill this kid and torture him to death, then they're not as scary as they should be. They're just like random psychic vampire villains that we don't care about. But having them like sort of like terrorize this kid really makes them like superbly evil. Yeah. The prologue really hinted at the stakes and this really nails it home. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, normally this would have all just not had anything to do with the story, but Abra due to her abilities, probably witnessed kind of the psychic shockwaves coming off of that boy and traveled all the way in her mind across country to witness it. And Rose notices it. And Abra just panics and stamps murder on Dan's wall. Not even chalk, stamps it into the wall (laughs) like it's cracked in the word murder. And of course, he wakes up and sees its reflection in the mirror in a great homage to the last film. And it says Red Rum, Mm -hmm. an opposite reflection experience from the original. So many good moments like that in this movie. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure that we will be talking about that later on. Yeah. So yeah, so Abra is a very smart kid, like we talked about earlier, and so she goes into full-on detective mode and starts to look up things about this boy and ultimately uses some of the things to try to, you know, convince Dan that he needs to help out, right? Yep. She's discovered that she can touch things to find, and she prints out the kid's picture Mm -hmm. from the internet, holds it, closes her eyes, and is able to track what had happened, going back into her previous memories and seeing that one of the members of the cult had been touching his baseball glove, kind of making fun of him. Bury the chunk. Yep. Knowing that if she got a hold of that glove, she could track that guy since he had touched it. I forgot what this version of, um, of psychic power is called. There's words for every type, but it's the type where you touch something and you can see it's history or memory or whatever associated with an object. Yeah. I don't know either. I, I know it's like probably on the tip of my tongue, but that's also a really neat, like niche ability to have. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is right around this point is where Abra is sort of like stalking Rose the hat and she goes into the grocery store and so like following her around. I love right? it because it's so normal. Yeah. 
to to watch the villain of a film go grocery shopping. That's right. In her fucking hat. And it's just music playing. Yeah. And it just grounds the film so much and grounds that scene because they're existing in everyday, normal, mundane life. That's right. But still being themselves and having their abilities. And so Rose senses that she is being watched and goes to see you know the closest window a reflection in the freezer door mm-hmm. With sees abra line. and uses her skills to go into abra's mind and abra freaks the fuck out yep and like explodes that glass and pushes rose back right get and she out. has a true yeah. sense of what her power is right anytime i get to hear rebecca ferguson say well hi there you know <laughs> i'm just like so happy with it right well her character is floored she has not experienced this kind of power yeah. for potentially hundreds of thousands of years you know if ever and uh this thing literally i mean from across the country pushed her back 20 feet mm-hmm. and exploded that glass and later locally crow daddy in the at least in the director's cut crow daddy lets her know that hey i tracked down a, a freak uh neighborhood scoped earthquake in this neighborhood right around the area you're thinking this person is from why don't we go check it out from there and rose is like oh shit you're right this is this might be it you're gonna have to remind me do they do they refer to her as a whale yeah they do right yeah, she's because the whale a huge fucking ahab, ahab thing going on yep yeah, it's like Moby Dick all over it, right? Because Rose Hat becomes obsessed with finding this child. And it's such kind of a subversion, you know, and, and this happens again with Rose and Abra, where Rose is so confident and so evil, mm-hmm. you know, in her abilities and keeps getting smacked the fuck down. But it's her, you know, she is Captain Ahab and she wants to hunt her whale. That is exactly it. I mean, like, I don't know why I didn't like think about this having seen the movie until now, but this is a total Ahab moment for her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's the, you know, the fucking lack of hubris or whatever that Ahab has. It is his downfall. Right. So, yeah, that's it's an amazing scene. Um, and I think that Stephen King does this so well is that he finds, you know, like you said, mundane examples and has the evil put into it, right? Like everything that Stephen King writes just happens to be in just a normal world, a normal town or whatever, right? That people are experiencing abnormal things. Yeah. And it's just, it's what he does, what he does so well. But from here, we actually transition into chapter four called Turn World. And it do. So Abra finds Dan with a psychic GPS, as she calls it. And uh, he is shocked to see her. And of course, he's uncomfortable because, you know, a grown ass man with a little girl talking on a park bench isn't exactly normal. (laughs) By that little train. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so uh, she's like, no, I'll just call you my uncle, you know, even though that's not creepy either. Yeah. And so he tells her, you know, she's trying to get his help. She's trying to recruit help to do something about this boy who was murdered, who she witnessed. She wants to do something about it. She has the the power and and the will to do it. And she wants to recruit help from an adult who she can trust. And she has been pen palling with this guy for eight years as a kid. She's grown up with him essentially. And, um, you know, he basically refuses to help and says, you need to turn off your shine and hide it for your own safety because this world will eat you alive. Because of course his own experience is those ghosts hunting him from the, from the overlook for, you know, years and years. Yeah. So, I mean, like the opposite of what DeCalaron, I think, would say at this point to her. Right. I mean, he wouldn't say like refuse to shine. He never told Danny to refuse to shine. Right. He Mm -hmm. just told him to be careful with your abilities. Right. But yeah. And so um, 
I think Dan eventually does talk to Dick Halloran again. Yeah, right? it's, it's later that night, it, right? Because he sends her home. You know, essentially saying, "I'm sorry, I can't help you, and this is what I'm telling you to do." You know, and and she's saying, "All I need is that baseball glove. If you could go find it, you know, I can help you. I just can't do it myself. I can't drive, for instance. You know, like she's yeah, a kid. She's good. You know, and so she thought she had a friend. You know, um, and a partner in this, and he's telling her that no, keep your head down." Keep your head down. They won't notice you. You can't contend with this. Go, you know, go home, be safe. You know, and I, I'm not sure she takes that to heart, you know, but she's probably thinking about it. Meanwhile, she knows that she's being hunted by Rose after that. And she's told Dan about it. But, you know, anyway, that night, Dan does talk to Dick Halloran and Dick Halloran says, no, you need to pay it forward. This is my last visit to you. And this is cyclical. You need to pay it forward and someday she'll pay it forward. But I did it for you and I'm still on the hook. And now, you know what? You need to do it for her. And so you need to help this little girl. So many themes. There's so many ways, different ways to read like this kind of relationship between the three of them. Right. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not going to break them all down, you know, but as a homosexual, you know what I mean? Like I have have very strong feelings about what it is to have a mentor. Right. And to pay it forward or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I know it's completely different than what's being talked about in this particular movie, but from an allegorical standpoint, I sort of get it, you know? But I think like after this is one of your favorite moments in the movie. Definitely my favorite visual moment in the film. And also just the most kick-ass moment in the film for me to kind of, this is almost like the heart of the movie for me. I get chills even thinking about it. I Mm want to watch it on repeat. It's very uh, Kubrick. And it was also one of the first scenes that was actually storyboarded by Flanagan himself for this film from his head. And it is Rose going into the psychic, astral plane or whatever taking flight to go hunt down abra right and she finds the neighborhood but first she's flying across the earth in this amazing shot of you know her just flying very calmly there's no epic music there's just heartbeat and you can see her like looking over the entire world like some sort of evil goddess Mm -hmm. and silently swooping down to find Abra's neighborhood and finding her house and then turning the world essentially for her to move in through the window into Abra's bedroom while, as she sleeps and moving into her mind. And, uh, you know, it's such an amazingly choreographed shot uh, and whole sequence, really. And it's just one of my favorites in, in all of cinema, probably at this point. It's like a really evil, like Google Maps. <laughs> yeah, talk about GPS. <laughs> yeah, but she does it all mentally, right? And so, right. but it turns out Abra was ready for her and set a trap, you know, which is just such a subversion on on what you'd expect, you know, a villain victim relationship to be. And Abra has the upper hand again, and this is also where we see. Her trying to get into Abra's mind and seeing the locker, mm-hmm. you know, the little file cabinets on the wall. And it's kind of cute and quaint for her because she says, my mind's like a cathedral. You should see it, you know, to a sleeping Abra, you know, and and Abra does go into her mind and it is a cathedral. And this just reminds me so much of the mythology that Stephen King has given us through multiple of his works, um, most notably Dreamcatcher, right? The mental cabinet where like Abra and Rose store all their memories is similar to the memory warehouses from Dreamcatcher, which was a, obviously a previous adaption of a Stephen King novel. But both concepts are extremely similar to the, the mind or memory palace made popular by Sherlock and Hannibal in 2010-2013. But it's also a mental technique for storing information that dates back to ancient Rome. And I loved to see that consistency here in this universe. Stephen King will 
take an idea and sort of run with it. And I, I think that he likes to throw a lot of like ideas that come from previous novels into other novels, right? Like it's, he does it. He really has created an entire universe for himself. Well, no, it's yeah. literally a shared universe yeah. by his own words with through the dark tower. So yes. Yeah. I and mean, there's a really neat like graphic you can look up on the internet too, where how the dark tower like connects all his different books, right? Yeah. It's super neat to look at. And it's a huge rabbit hole if you ever want to go through it. Well, Dick Halloran, I think, shows up in it, right? Uh, yes. So there's there's parts of it where Dick Halloran is at sort of a um, a bar that's for African Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, and uh, like Dairy, the town from it is like in all kinds of novels, right? So well, anyway, so Avra just locks her in one of her own little uh, her hand, uh, you know, traps her hand, traps her hand in one of her little uh, file cabinets, and she has to basically deglove herself to pull her hand out, <laughs> and then it's just like monstrous effort for her to leave, and and when she does, she is slingshotted back into her body and falls off the top of her camper where she was meditating, and it's just kind of as awesome as it is hilarious as it is just epic. And I just love that whole sequence. Yeah. She really does like fly off the top of that camper. Oh, right? Yeah. But it's right at that moment when she's like come to and has flown off that they learned that grandpa flick is sort of on his last legs. Yeah. So, yeah. And he and, dies of a, of slow starvation over the years. He's already advanced age. He's the oldest of them, you know, and we get to see him. Um, what do they call it? Cycle cycle. Yes. Yeah. He cycles. And, um, they all sort of like share in his steam when he finally yeah. cycles on. Right. And it almost looks like they're cycling between like their natural corpse state for how old they are. And then how their supernatural kind of physical vid- visage is supposed to look. And then they just do that until they kind of turn into vampire dust. Essentially. Yeah. It's super visually neat looking, right. Yeah. That sort of like back and forth between like their younger state and like what they would be if they were actually dying. I, I think it's a really neat way to to kill a villain or to kill a vampire really we oftentimes will see things in buffy where they sort of like immediately turn to dust right after they make a face or whatnot or in other vampire movies where they're like melting away into nothing right but this is a really prolonged painful looking experience for these like creatures to die yeah agreed so based on Dick Halloran's, you know, feedback <laughs> to Dan about paying it forward, Dan does wake up Billy and, you know, asks him to believe him about this crazy story about the true nod and about, you know, Abra. And essentially they go try and find the baseball boy's body with Abra's, you know, psychic help. Mm-hmm. And of course they, they end up finding it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, and well, fortunately for them, I suppose, and, and getting the baseball glove and, and heading towards Abra's house. Yeah. And I mean, like Billy is kind of hesitant, but he, he goes and helps his friend, right? Obviously yeah. they've, they've grown some trust over the years and it, he sort of like has an idea of what Dan's abilities are, right? He makes no qualms in saying like it's suspected or whatever, but he sort of gets the, you know, the full brunt of it and all of his suspicions are sort of like, you know, brought to light. And they go and they they dig up this boy's body, which is a horrible thing to do anyway. But and then they have to go and take that baseball glove back to Abra. You know, all the things that must have been going through his mind, like, did he murder this person or, you know, is he batshit crazy or is he a pedophile? I saw this, you know, this girl with him earlier, you know, and and it turns out it's the, it's the boy with the baseball glove. And it's just uh, it's interesting that they the direction and writing here was not for him to be more questioning but we do know that they've been besties for eight years so yeah well and i think like 
we sort of get the idea that Billy has helped a lot of people over yeah. the years, right? And so he's he's trusting and he's willing to like, you know, go off on a whim and help someone if they need it. Like it's not unheard of for his character, right? And I I think these are the moments that we really get to like that character a lot more. Like he's he's willing to do more than just like help you get a job in an apartment. He's willing to go help you dig up a kid's body if yeah. you need to. Right? Well, he gave him completely the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know, and of course that they did hang a lantern on it, you know, with, mm-hmm. with Dan mentioning, you must think I'm crazy or even worse, if it's true, you know, then we've got to contend with these forces That's right. that we are probably not any match for, but we have no other option. And at this point, we're moving squarely into chapter five called Parlor Trick. And my, my, there are a lot of parlor tricks in this chapter. <laughs> there certainly are. So Dan and Billy meet Abra at her house and they meet her dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's actually really funny. I, I like like the moments in this because her, her dad is sort of like, you know, incredulous about the whole situation. Right. Yeah. But, um, and in a really comedic fashion, it's like, who is this adult man that's been corresponding with my daughter? Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> how much can I punch you in the face right now? <laughs> Until Abra actually does finally force feed him the psychic, you know, memories of watching that kid die and what's mm-hmm. at stake. And he gets it, you know, which is also kind of comical, horrible, but comical because of course he instantly has to go get a drink and, that's right. <laughs> and then get another drink and offer it to people who are going to refuse it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I I like this because like Abra really does something again that Danny never really did, right? Like she fully confronts her parents in two separate manners, right? One later on to show what her abilities are, and it helps them at the moment that they needed help the most when dealing with her abilities. Yeah. So, she does get that reading from the baseball glove, right? And finds that they are on their way and they're close, mm-hmm. which is faster than they had thought. And so they have to come up with a plan. And that is our first parlor trick, which is she is going to fake her presence in this uh, kind of this forest clearing or little, you know, rest stop park or whatever it happens to be to kind of throw them all off. And so, of course, Danny and uh, Billy are in the forest waiting with guns. And um, Abra has kind of psychically manifested herself on top of a stuffed animal of a bunny (laughs) and fools them all. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they even inject it with drugs and everything thinking it's her, you know, but uh, it wasn't. And most of them or actually all, but one of them get shot and killed and meet almost immediately. That's right. So they are like snipers and they start picking off the true knot one by one and they start to cycle. Right. So again, we're dealing with a different kind of vampire mythology, right? So many things can kill them. Like, most things would kill them, I would imagine. And they're cycling around them. Uh, he, Snakebite Andy gets shot, and she starts to cycle as well. And uh, Billy gets a little too close, even with Dan's warning to not. And it's one of her, you know, final tricks as well. Yep, Snakebite Andy. So she tells him, you know, shoot yourself. As she's dying. As her she's last cycling breath. through, yeah. And I mean, with, with so hateful, she does that and he does, he shoots himself and it's like a really, really sad moment in the movie. Yeah. I went from being so intrigued and interested in snakebite Andy, knowing she was a kind of a bad character, mm-hmm. you know, not really to her own fault, but she was kind of put into these situations. She's a sympathetic own, villain. Yeah. Through her own abuse. And then of course, through her recruitment, 
which they didn't really tell her the whole story or give her the fine print. Just, kind you of, said it wasn't going to hurt or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah. And you told me I was going to live forever and blah, blah, blah. But uh-huh. you know, she ends up dying for these people eight years later, you know, and, but the last thing she does is just to her nature, which is just to hurt a man, you know, and she did it and he killed himself and it was just so tragic. I hated that. I hated that he killed himself and I hated that she used her power that way, but it's kind of necessary yet again to show us the stakes. I I mean, I hate that he died cuz I like that character a lot, you right? Like that, but you love that actor. I love that actor in many ways. Um, but I don't hate that she used her power in her last press to do that cuz I don't I don't think that it's outside of her character, right? I think that it's something that she definitely would do. Yeah. And I'm 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 kind of glad that she did. You know, yeah. I, I hate that the character died, but I'm glad that it happened in that particular way because as a horror fan like i find that intriguing that she would still continue to do that retribution so. and it, it also showed me that either dan isn't you know as skilled or as powerful as maybe we had hoped or thought mm-hmm. but she is able to stop him you know he's he's fairly conscious of it you know he's trying to resist but she's able to you know to stop him where she couldn't stop rose the hat that's right so, but also at this particular moment, we learned that the True Knot had, you know, other plans in mind, or they had a plan B. Yeah. And Crow Daddy had made his way to Abra's house, and he sort of like drugs her mid trance, and um, abducts her and kills her father on the way out. Yeah, he had a parlor trick of his own. That's right. Um, and Rose is furious because basically her entire family, with you know the the exception of Crow Daddy, are now dead. Mm-hmm. And more than furious, I think that she's experiencing like huge pangs of grief, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, I completely agree. Rose is steaming mad. <laughs> she certainly is. <laughs> no, no pun intended. Uh, yeah, but she's like, she's experiencing so much grief. They just lost Grandpa Flick. She's lost most of her family. All she has left at this moment is Crow Daddy, but at least he has the whale. He right? does. And you know, it's, it's interesting because... I would almost have liked to to have a little bit more time with her on that because she'd known these people for decades, if not sometimes hundreds or more years. Mm -hmm. And so that's how much these people meant to her. Yeah. I mean, I would like to say, you know, give a character enough time to grieve or whatnot, but they, they really don't have that time. Like they're coming with the girl. There are already other parties involved. They have to move very, very fast at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not quite the end of that story yet because there's still one member of the true not left, but I mean, he's dispatched pretty quickly. Yeah. So of course, from Dan's perspective, Abra's gone. He can't do anything. Her right. father's dead back at the place. His best friend yep. has just died for this, but he knows that Rose the Hat and Crow Daddy have taken uh, Abra and he doesn't know what to do about it. So he goes back home essentially. And is just like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? In a moment of panic this is the worst thing that's, you know, his, his uh, mentee has essentially been taken. His worst fear for her has been, has happened. His best friend who he wrapped into this, you know, has just died of, you know, suicide based on, on, you know, snake bite Andy's uh, hypnosis or whatever. And he's really cycling in his own way, circling the drain and he is about to take a drink, but he decides at the last minute to throw that bottle and to open his mind to find Abra. And he does. And she is drugged and in the car with Crow Daddy. And, uh, you know, they have a little one last parlor trick to play. Yeah, and so like Crow Daddy and Abra have this sort of like tête-à-tête where they're talking about the situation. He was like, "You're going to be in and out of it, right? And you know, you're you can't use your powers really. God gave you a big heavy dose." And um, 
so yeah, so Dan has a parlor trick of his own, like you said, and he sort of like, you know, shines himself into Abra's body. Yeah, he kind of, uh, with her blessing, you know, takes control of her body with his the full use of his powers. And essentially, either telekinetically or by pushing onto Crow Daddy, makes him wreck the car and kills himself, essentially. Flies through the windshield and dies horribly. So always wear your fucking seatbelt. I mean, yep. come on. I also like the fact, going back to that that near drink that Dan took, right? I mean, that landlady had, like, two fucking rules, right? Like, pay your rent and don't make a lot of noise. And he slams that fucking bottle down. I was like, do you want to be a f- Dan? Come on. I know. I thought that when uh, murder was stamped onto the wall with that, like, like cracking How does he still get to live there? He's breaking all these rules left and right. Two loud noises in eight years. <laughs> You're out. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, you know, Abra survives the car accident and has to make her way on foot to a meeting place where Dan eventually meets up with her. And they have to form a plan, which brings us into chapter six, the last chapter, What Was Forgotten. Mm. What was forgotten? The Overlook was forgotten. That's right. I barely remember it. Yeah, their plan is essentially to lure Rose to the Overlook so that she may be consumed by the hotel, right? And uh, I think half of this is, you know, like you have to be on board at this point. Yeah. Because to me, like, why didn't he just like bring a gun and shoot Rose the hat and use, you know, I think the same trick would have worked twice. Yeah. Almost in this case. But, you know, it it's an interesting full circle kind of move and it makes sense narratively. And I'm on board 100 percent. And I hope, you know, most if not all of our listeners are at this point as well. Well, I think if you I mean, you have to like suspend your disbelief for a little bit. Right. So we know that Rose the Hat is incredibly powerful. Right. As powerful as Abra, more powerful than Dan, we can assume. Right. And a plan of like shooting her with a gun like he did the rest of the true knot may or may not work. So don't don't take that easiest route because you might lose his life and Abra's life. You really have risk. to go. You yeah. Know? They were lucky that that Rose the Hat hadn't been there. That's right. So, of course, they have to go to the Overlook. It's probably the one place where people who have the Shining are susceptible, right, Mm -hmm. themselves, right? And so the one place they know will get her and they lead her there. Yep. Except that in this own narrative, all those ghosts are gone. That's right. (laughs) You know, so this must have been part of the plan to begin with. But I digress because we get that amazing helicopter shot straight Mm. from the beginning of The Shining from 1980. So much homage. And they have turned it, the exact same shot, same film. They degrained it and made it nighttime and made fake snow. And it's exactly the same shot. I love it. It Gives me chills. Yep. And they play the music and all of that is a little bit, you know, like the first time I watched this, it was a little bit, you know, like like fan, you know, like fan service, fan right? service. Yeah. But, you know, I, I wouldn't have had it any other way on, on, you know, subsequent watchings. I'm okay with fan service and things, right? Especially if there's been a good chunk of time between the things, right? So, I mean, I know a lot of people don't like that. Like, they're just doing things to make fans happy. But guess who pays the fucking bills, you know? So, yeah. yeah. You have something like this in your movie. Well, this is the universe, you yeah. know? And it, if anyone can do it, they can. And they are going back to the Overlook, you know? And uh, this was this door was left open by Kubrick, not Stephen King. Right. And we'll discuss a little bit more of that later. Mm -hmm. But as they arrive, Dan has to wake up the overlook basically with the shining as he walks through the house the lights kind of start flickering on and getting power directly from his 
ability. And that's just, um, it's a, it's a good callback to what Dick had told him at the beginning of the film. That's right. Cause the hotel itself has a shine. Right. Yep. And, um, as he's waking it up, he he heads through all those great, you know, the biggest hits of the bathroom and puts his head through the door. And we get that iconic mm-hmm. shot of him where his father's head was through the bathroom door. And and eventually he makes his way to the uh, to the gold room, right to the bar where he meets dad. The one ghost who wasn't put into a box. The one that didn't follow him. Yeah. So, yeah, he has that conversation with dad and dad is like, don't you want to drink? Right. And uh, one of the best lines in this movie, I think, is he's like, well, the price, he's like, your money's no good here, right? And he's like, but the price of this drink is way more than just that, right? It's eight years. It's the eight years that I had before this, and the eight years are more that could be after it, right? It's just, just an incredible way to put this like faux monetary value onto alcoholism and recovery. It's just amazing yeah and i love the whole thing about you know there's so many good lines in these this back and forth between him and his father you know a drink you know a man takes a drink a drink takes a drink and the drink takes a man that's right you know and all of that stuff um and also in the director's cut we get you know another scene in the bathroom mm-hmm. you know which was not in the theatrical cut and where we get to see that conversation continue where he is trying to convince dan to take care of abra or correct her in the correct same way her. that you know, Jack was told to correct his family, you know, and so it's just such a great callback. And I do wonder what your opinion is. Do you think that was the hotel wearing a mask, which is actually their words later, you know, were wearing masks, you know, or if that was really his father's spirit just completely enthralled by the hotel? I guess it could be either. Mm, I think the answer to that question is yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, I think... um I think that I think it was the hotel. I think that it was the one thing left in its arsenal, right? Because I think as, as far as Dan is concerned, he's put those things away. The only thing he had left to deal with from the overlook was his father, yep. both like the lasting trauma and the physical effects that he like gave him, right? So of course the thing he needed to confront was his dad. And also, I mean, like he had become his dad in his life, right? And so his dad was also given a choice in The Shining. He made the wrong one, right? Yeah. And so the only person to give him that choice logically would have been his father. He had to tell his father, no, like I'm not you. I love right? that because it also speaks back to an earlier conversation that he and Dick had, which was there was some light in your father and there was, you know, it just as the Overlook fed on your light, Danny, it fed on the dark. Mm-hmm. It fed the dark and your father and you have some dark too, Danny, you know? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that is, is King, right? Not Kubrick. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, like there, we'll get into some conversations about like the differences between movie and novel. Right. But I mean that, that fully, this entire moment is King. Right. So finally Rose arrives. Mm-hmm. Finally. Well, hi there. We see her, <laughs> see her headlights coming. Right. Yeah. So ever has to blast him and let him know that she's coming. Right. And Rose has to know when she enters the hotel that it's different and it has that psychic cancer or whatever Abra had said it has. Yeah. And of course, she, we see her noticing like the elevator pouring out with blood and, mm-hmm. and and some of that. And she is, if anything, intrigued or amused by it. I would say a little bit of both. Like she wants to go deeper in the hotel because she wants to see what's around the next corner. Right. Um 
I kind of imagine her saying, well, hi there. Like every time she turns a corner, right. And sees something, you know, love it. Just love it. She is amazed and intrigued by what this particular place has to offer. Right. And she doesn't quite know what to make of it. I think I'm just kind of in love with her misplaced confidence, you know, (laughs) I mean, every good villain has to, you know, I mean, like have, you know, like there's nothing that can defeat me. Right. You have to have that kind of confidence. Otherwise, but you can see it in her eyes. Like this is not her first haunted house. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Like she's like, Oh, blood. That's neat. Or whatever. You (laughs) know? Yeah. 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 She's just so blase about the whole thing. Like she's doing this herself. She's rolling up her sleeves. She's like, fine, I'll do it myself. That's right. She's kind of Jack Torrance all the way. And she kind of does. But uh, yeah, she finally uh, walks into the main, thoroughfare of the hotel the main lobby area mm-hmm. you know which is of course famous the colorado sure. lounge the colorado lounge and uh yeah and confronts dan and uh and abra and of course at first she doesn't know who dan is and then she finally realizes that this is the guy that killed my crew she's kind of turned on by him too right yeah. she's like who are you handsome well hi there handsome <laughs> you know what i'm just gonna take all of my rose the hat mannerisms and take them straight to the nearest gay bar <laughs> <laughs> well hi there well hi there handsome <laughs> <laughs> oh lord but yeah so i mean like they sort of like have this confrontation like right away right and um there's a point where they sort of take rose into the hedge maze right yeah they instantly attack mm-hmm. right after their first little verbal repartee and they instantly attack abra and dan together and entrap uh her into dan's mind which she doesn't realize is dan's mind at first which takes the form of the snowy hedge maze. That's right. Which is another great callback because he used that once before to escape his father. You know, that's just where he's trapping those ghosts and those boxes. And that's where he's attempting to trap uh, Rose the Hat as well. And it's working. You know, Abra is playing with her, uh, using Dan's mind to hide and and uh, attack her. But, you know, right as they're about to, to trap her in that box or one of those boxes of, of Dan's, uh, she realizes it's not Abra's mind, it's not her mind, and that it's his. And that's right. that she sees that box come in and she blasts them the fuck out. That's of her right. Mind. She wises up and she's like, This isn't this isn't right. Yeah, right. she has that big enough moment. And uh yeah, they're all just like whiplashed out of each other's minds and uh Abra runs away and uh there's the physical confrontation between Rose and Dan and she's been huffing steam. So That's she's right. uh she's been she's like basically on PCP or something of the psychic equivalent. <laughs> I imagine that when he's swinging that that axe at her and hits her shoulder that she's almost instantly healing based on all of the steam that she's been huffing because we saw her huff like six different you know, cans of that, that shit, you know, to, to come here and be some sort of, you know, threat that they couldn't, you know, this is her last stand. She has no more steam left. Well, she sort of takes that hit and like, keeps going. She's like, ouch, you know what I mean? And then like, Mm -hmm. you know, goes on with it. Right. And I love the fact that like Dan is sort of put into the position that his mother was in right on that same staircase being confronted by someone. It's like, he's having to deal with both parents at the overlook like he should be he's really coming to terms with his life and everything in his past he's putting himself in both of their shoes he's able to say no i don't want to drink and yes i'm going to fight right and it's just amazing for that character and another really good full circle moment well she lets him have his say you know she lets him she basically lets him (laughs) hit her with the axe and she takes it and she takes a swing and hits his femoral artery and throws Mm -hmm. him down the stairs and that's that that's right and she tells him too i've nicked your femoral artery right 
Oh, how many horror movies are we going to watch where people call out the name of the fucking artery or vein they hit? Lord. I seem to have nicked your femoral artery. You're bleeding to death, are we? <laughs> oh, hi there, blood. Oh, hi there, blood. Let me stick my finger in it. <laughs> yeah, so she basically tries to take the steam of Dan. That's right. And realizes while she's consuming him and sticking her fingers in his femoral artery, you know, to cause pain, that uh, A, he tastes of whiskey, and uh, B, he's not alone in there. No, no. No, he's not. And um, those boxes are released by Dan, letting the full force of the Overlook have it. Yep. And it quickly overwhelms her and consumes her That's before right. she can do anything about it. Of course, we don't get to celebrate for too long because they immediately turn to Dan. But, I mean, like, it's a really good moment for fans of The Shining, right? Don't Especially. Stay with us, Danny. Yeah, Kubrick's Shining is all over this right oh, yeah. here. Like, every character that you, like, are scared of from that movie, almost all of them, are present. I was going to say there's a little puppy play exception here. Yeah, there's no puppy play in this one. And that's sad. I kind of wanted to see that, you know, and I felt it was missing from this movie, Flanagan. Uh, but, I mean, all the other big ones are there. Yeah. And so, you know, Dan is actually, they don't consume him, apparently. they I, Maybe they want him for some grander purpose. They want him to help them with Abra, maybe. I don't know. But he is possessed. And uh, I love that Abra goes to run and hide in room 237. I don't know if that was part of the plan, but I just love there's this, this throwaway moment in here that most people might not remember. But the old lady corpse, mm-hmm. you know, is in the bathtub and steps up and is about to step towards Abra. And Abra just looks at her and goes, try it. I know. It's <laughs> so. such a different experience from Danny peeing himself to Abra going, try it. For real. <laughs> I mean, like this kid really like has her own and can hold her own. You know, I love it. Try it. <laughs> so... Dan getting possessed by the hotel is essentially the ending of Stephen King's The Shining, right? Yeah. In the novel. So, I mean, like, essentially we're getting to see the ending that Stephen King had actually wrote, just with a different character and a different story. So, I mean, like... um so you mean again, Jack? Jack yeah. was the one that was possessed at the end of The Shining. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Yeah. So, like, with Dan getting with Dan getting possessed, like, is is the same ending as the original shining it's just a different character right so jack was possessed in the original novel and he was facing off against a kid which was his son right and so like we as fans of stephen king's work are finally getting to see sort of the ending that stephen king had written originally exactly as another tightrope walk by flanagan because Mm -hmm. you know the original shining book ended with the overlook burning down that's right. right. And of course, of course, the original Dr. Sleep book ends with them kind of on the grounds, but mm-hmm. not in the hotel because it had long since burned up, been retaken by nature. Yeah. And so anyway, Abra basically confronts Dan or vice versa and essentially says, you know, compels him to take control, take back control, you know, and and also tells him, hey, uh, you may not have scanned your own host's mind, but Dan uh, kind of did something down there in the boiler room you might want to take care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Dan wakes up, tells Abra to run, essentially, and uh, goes down to the boiler room being repossessed. And, you know, before it can stop it, Dan takes, you know, retakes control and basically lets the thing blow up. But before it does, he has a very touching kind of moment where he's a child again and he's being comforted by his mother. That's right. You know, and then, and then we see Abra watch the hotel getting burnt to the ground as it should in the very warm ending 
That's right. That Stephen King wanted mm-hmm. uh, as the authorities approach. He needed to have that moment with his mom, too, because he talked about earlier not being able to guide her through death, right? He talked about, like, toward the end, seeing flies on people's faces, and her face was covered with them. And he was scared of that, right? So he needed to have that time to sort of, like, say goodbye to his mom, yeah, right? I kind of wish they would have done something similar with his dad, you know what I mean? But, like, I don't... This is one of those situations where I don't think a character needed some sort of saving grace. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he did something bad. They had their final confrontation or talk, right? I think that if they had shown Henry Thomas kind of kneeling down besides the mother, you know, it would yeah. have been kind of an Anakin Skywalker moment. You know, uh, yeah, too yeah, many yeah. questions, you know, yeah. about or oh, is the hold gone? Like what's going on? So I'm glad that they left it as it was. But if we had had like 30 more minutes or something, that would have been great to see, I think. I'm okay with 30 more minutes in this yeah, movie. Yeah, but four hours, fine with me. I'm perfectly okay with it, but we still have an epilogue. And we do. This, right? So we find that Abra is talking with Dan's spirit, which is really nice. I like that because that's not just Dan's end. He's, we know that we go on, right? Exactly. As she tells her mother later on, you know, that dad's fine. We go on and you don't have to worry about it, me or anything else, you know, but she's talking with Dan. He tells her, you know, don't hide it like I did. Don't mm-hmm. make that mistake. Shine. You know, go ahead and and use your abilities, you know, and help people because that's what I found was the best way forward with my life. And that's true. And it's, again, another really touching moment when she's talking to her mom on that staircase. Right. Mm -hmm. And and she's like, you know, dad's okay. And she's sort of, again, like this is the moment where she tells, you know, her other parent, hey, I have this ability. Right. I'm not scared of it. You shouldn't be scared of it. In fact, we can learn a lot from it. Right. And then so her mom says, are you coming to dinner? And she said in a minute. Right. Because she has one more thing to do. Yep. She looks behind her and senses, oh, there's something in the bathroom. (laughs) It's that lady. It's a hideous, rotten old lady corpse. The lady from 237 just can't get enough. Mm hmm. And so uh, she calmly, confidently walks to the bathroom and closes the door with a little smile on her face and, you know, presumably traps her just as Dan did in the past. And, uh, you know, it's just a great ending. And then, of course, we get those end credits with Midnight, the Stars and You, same as the end credits of The Shining. And it's just perfect. It is just perfect. She told that old woman to try it and that old woman did. And it did not end well for her. Mm -hmm. She's trying to. So we've gone through the entire movie again at this point and sort of like gushed over it. And um, we want to point out some of the differences between the theatrical version and the director's cut. So like we've said, it's divided into six chapters or title cards. Um, There's an added 30 minutes of footage, including an extended hunting violet scene at the very beginning as part of the prologue, as well as an extended Dick Halloran scene, which I I really love. Um, More Dick Halloran is always better. And uh, we get an extended young Abra scene with uh, more scenes like, I think, piano and mm-hmm. some other things that are they're a little bit more extended. They add some sort of whimsy to, like, the idea of The Shining in these moments. Yeah. And, of course, we get that extended baseball sequence. Uh, and based on what I said earlier, instead of, like, the side of the face, we got, you know, straight up changed to a close up with blood splatter. And I think that really like adds huge touches of horror to this movie, which could be like, you know, more fantasy than anything else. But this really like grounds it straight into the horror genre. Exactly. And then we get Crow Daddy and Rose scene uh, talking about Abra's earthquake and how to track her. And that's right before she takes her little astral plane visit to to Abra's trap. That's right. Um, And then there is the confrontation between Crow Daddy and Dave, Abra's dad. Right. And um, 
we get a little bit more of that in this uh, director's cut. Yeah, we get a little bit more of Dave across the board in this director's cut, mm-hmm. which is nice to see. It gives us a little bit more context into the relationship between him and Abra and how protective he is. That's right. And I think that, you know, adding that into this sort of like makes that moment with her mom at the end a little bit more poignant, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, we get more Dan and Jack at the Overlook, right, between him and his father, uh, because the whole bathroom scene was added. Yeah, and you really need that. I mean, like, Mike Flanagan said he wanted to create a film that reconciled, you know, the Shining novel and the Shining movie, right? And to do that, he had to sort of, like, intertwine the two, but create his own, right? And that's what he did in these particular moments, I feel. I think we also get extended scenes, you know, um, with flashbacks to 1980, Mm -hmm. you know, and so there's 30 whole minutes added here. And and obviously the structure has somewhat changed, too, with those chapters. And I think it really helps the flow and is actually a little bit more of an homage to the original Shining being broken up by title cards as well. Yep, I completely agree. I mean, it's not so in your face as the title cards were in the original Shining Kubrick version. But Yeah, it's not 11, you know, yeah. it's uh, six. <laughs> and it's just as long of a movie, except it took uh, 50 days to shoot instead of uh, over a year. I'm pretty sure that nobody was traumatized (laughs) in the making of this particular movie. Yeah. Right. And these title cards are a little bit more descriptive as opposed to Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, so that being said, let's get a little bit into the background, uh, starting with the story, right? So author Stephen King said he wrote Dr. Sleep because he wondered what Danny Torrance would be like as an adult. Flanagan stated, Danny is so traumatized by what he's been through, he has no idea how to deal with this. And McGregor uh, himself, Ewan McGregor, who played Dan, said, Dan Torrance's philosophy early on in the story is not to use his shining. He's drunk to suppress the horrible visitations, the spirits that are from the Overlook Hotel. Yeah, I I mean, I get that. And I think that he's drinking far more than just for suppression. I think he's drinking for suppression of other things too, right? The whole trauma, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, you know, family issues. I mean, like nobody drinks just for one reason, right? Um, It's a multitude. It's a legion of reasons. Yeah. So Flanagan described The Shining as very much about addiction, which is doom. It's about annihilation and the destruction of a family. While Dr. Sleep was about recovery, he stated, in the way that addiction feels like doom and annihilation, recovery is rebirth and recovery is salvation in a way. And that actually kind of mirrors some of what Flanagan was saying earlier when we quoted him about what drew him to the story to begin with. That's right. So he said, it touches on themes that are the most attractive to me, which are childhood trauma leading into adulthood, addiction, the breakdown of a family and the after effects decades later. Right. And I think it's safe to say that we see this all the time in Flanagan's work. Oh, yeah, for sure. And Oculus and Ouija Origin of Evil and Definitely in The Haunting of Hill House. And The Haunting of Bly Manor. Yeah. You know, Um, a different kind of addiction. I think that Bly Manor is really like the addiction to people, right? That sort of like central relationship between those ghosts, right? And how they use each other to sort of like, you know, try to to be together even in the end of life, right? There's also trauma from those kids. That's right. So yeah, he really does, much like Stephen King, like to put children in some really like terrible situations, right? Stephen King does this all the time. And so does Flanagan, right? Well, we should also note that Flanagan has an existing relationship with Stephen King before this, with Gerald's game. That's right. Um, He took what many consider to be a really unadaptable Stephen King novel and adapted it into what I feel is a very good movie, right? Um, I read Gerald's game when it first came out and I was 
pretty young at the time and I probably shouldn't have been reading that book. But I thought even then I was like, this will never be a movie. Right. And then there it was. And it was a joy to watch. Right. As, as hard as it is, as hard as the themes are in Gerald's game, he really created a good movie with that. Yeah. And speaking of consistencies between books and movies, what are the big hits between differences between this movie and the book, Dr. Sleep? You know, I have to say that I have only read Dr. Sleep one time when it was first released back in 2013. Yes. And, um, you know, so my memory is a little hazy, right? Um, it's definitely something that I wanted to revisit. I can definitely tell you how I felt like leading up to the book's release, right? I was very excited to read Dr. Sleep because I liked the shining, you know, both the movie and the novel. And I was, you know, very interested to see where he would take this character of Dan Torrance. Right. But the biggest differences between the movie and the book is that like Flanagan tried to do in his sort of mission statement was to reconcile the two. And he does. Right. So um, in the book, obviously the, the overlook has already been destroyed. And so when they go to the overlook, it is really only mentally that they go there. Right. They're on the grounds, but everything else is just a projection mentally. Um, another huge difference between the movie and the book is the true knot is sort of more fleshed out, right? We get an idea of who some of these individual members of this like cult are. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, we get to know them and their backstories a little bit more than we do in the, in the movie. The movie was sort of just shown Rose the Hat, Crow Daddy, and Snakebite Andy, right? And I guess Grandpa Flick a little bit, right? But the rest of them are sort of like one-note, bystander, lineless characters, right? Yeah. And the book, it's not. You know, we sort of get an idea of how long these people have lived together and how they travel, right? And there's lots of descriptions about them as sort of like a caravan of these you know RVs traveling across the country and things like that. We really get to know these characters a little bit more. And I found that to be fascinating in the novel, actually. It creates a more believable group of villains as opposed to, in this movie, giving us one really good, believable villain. I don't know. I like Crow Daddy. I like Snakebite Andy. Yeah. You know, I thought there was several. I, I thought Grandpa Flick was uh, an interesting character, even though he had kind of a bit lines or whatever but you could see there was a personality there um also i think in the book there were differences in relationships like instead of crow daddy being her partner it was actually snake Bot andy yeah you know it wasn't a mentor mentee kind of relationship in the book as it is in the movie which flanagan thought would be more interesting also there was a subplot i believe that they caught like polio or some random you know disease from the baseball boy and so part of them trying to get a lot of steam to heal themselves from this you know really typical you know uh things that would be normally vaccinated against they're exposed to those things mm -hmm. this is why they're so out in the wilderness and things like that all the time to be apart from populations so they don't get these like things like smallpox and things like that you know <laughs> and so part of their their motivation is to cure themselves with getting more steam and things like that and so they're dying off i think at least one of them died off in the book from from this uh from getting this transmission of some sort of disease this you know that extinct disease that we don't normally have to worry about as a society but i think that's smartly gotten rid of in here just to streamline the story a little bit because really it's the um the lack of steam you know is all we really need for the story for for their motivation i think to move forward i do know i mean by and largely i feel like this movie is very like faithful to the book except for the places where he chose to be faithful to the original adaptation right but um he really does like walk that tightrope between the two and does a very good job of it i mean i will almost always say 
that the movie is not as good as the book in any situation, right? No matter what we're talking about. And this is no exception, right? I mean, Dr. Sleep as a novel to me is better than the movie just because you have access to the inner workings of these characters' minds in a way that Stephen King can only do. Like he's really good at that and getting us into the minds of every single character, whether they're bit part or main. Right. And I mean, that's something special that he does. And I fully suggest that if you're a fan of this movie, if you're a fan of the shining to go and read Dr. Sleep, like it's, it's good by and largely. Wasn't Abra in the book actually the the niece of danny torrance like in the in the in the movie it's hinted that or like they they put kind of hanging on it's like oh i can just say you're my uncle in the novel he actually is her uncle they find out i don't remember that no to be the case because i don't remember danny having a sibling you know or no it would have been um from his father's previous marriage uh, yeah i so it'd be like half it'd be again half niece i guess or whatever how many times removed or whatever you say but yeah i, I was reading about that earlier like i said i mean like my my memories of this are hazy and it, it's like it's one of the stephen king novels that i really want to go back and and reread or at this point like probably listen to like i haven't listened to an audio version of this and i'd like to and when we added it to the docket i thought oh i'm going to go back and revisit this before we want before we do the episode yeah. right but um you know we have things on our docket like way into the future and i think that we added dr sleep like pretty recently and you know i mean time is a factor and i just didn't have time to do it but yeah i mean if if that's the case if i've forgotten that much about the book i definitely need to go back and like revisit it if there's a version where like um ewan mcgregor or rebecca ferguson are reading it like for the audiobook just let me know <laughs> oh my god I, I mean obviously like it came out way before the movie so it's somebody else reading hell even it. dick halloran reading it you know like <laughs> scatman crothers or something like that yeah <laughs> No, I would love it. I don't know who reads the audiobook, but that's that's the way that I consume, you know, the literature that I read now. And so obviously when I revisit it, it will be an audio version. And I assume that it's going to be well done. So it's a good book. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were sort of on the fence about it. Stephen King doesn't do sequels, really. No. Right? And for him to have an entire novel that's an actual sequel to a book that he wrote so many years ago. Right. Like to me, it really was, I think he was trying to work out his own demons, right. And trying to reconcile his own dissatisfaction of the, the Kubrick version. And maybe even the version that he wrote himself, that mini series. Right. So he had to come to peace with the shining, maybe out of everything that he's written. Like that's maybe the one thing he held a lantern on. And I know that it's incredibly personal, you know, based on the way he got the idea from the book, the shining and, and everything thing and it's just something that he felt he needed to do and maybe these fans who asked him all these questions or whatever it gave him a spark and that's what we got yeah well let's get into the making of a little bit and i don't have much here because it's not like a storied abusive experience like the mm -hmm. shining was but it did take a lot of negotiating to get this film made mike flanagan had to convince stephen king that despite his own distaste for stanley kubrick's the shining uh audiences were more familiar with that version rather than the shining miniseries or even the book and largely preferred the film so therefore this film had to be a sequel to both stanley kubrick's classic film and the book and that did take some convincing um i listened to a podcast of um it's a stephen king podcast where they invite people on and they choose an adaptation and they talk about both the the book 
or story and the movie, right? And so Mike Flanagan was on this podcast and he was supposed to be talking about 1408, but they spent a lot of time talking about his interactions with Stephen King. And he went and met the man in person and like really told him his vision of adapting Dr. Sleep, right? And this is after Gerald's game. And so I think yeah. Stephen King was sort of like sold by it, you know? And I kind of get the idea that- Well, he, uh, he had also seen The Haunting of Hill House and mm-hmm. Stephen King loved that. Yes, for sure. And I mean, like Mike Flanagan, I think we can all agree, is a, a fantastic horror director, right? I think he has a very like central style and you, you can watch a movie and know that it's Flanagan. Right. And I also know that he's a big fan of Stephen King. And so like meeting Stephen King, I'm sure that he was like fangirling all over the place or whatever. And I think that eventually, I think he said like their conversation lasted much longer than he had anticipated and they, and they got to be like good friends by the end of it. So he, he went there to sell him and he sold him and then he made this movie. You know, I don't know because I can tell Kubrick film, right? Almost immediately. I don't know that I can, I can do the same thing with Flanagan and I'll tell you why is because part of the shining or clockwork orange or 2001 space odyssey is seeing almost like a photography demo reel, right? That's like, look at this, look Mm -hmm. what we have done. Look what I can do, you know? And some of it serves a story and some of it's kind of just like, Look at this, you know, and uh, versus everything that Flanagan did in Doctor Sleep, even with the same lenses and the same shots in the in the hotel and the the big, huge, epic Kubrickian scene of, you know, Rose traveling across the world on the astral plane or whatever, served the story 100 percent. None of it felt like it was flourish, really. And to me, that is, you know, to be able to do that stuff and have it serve the story 100 percent just served the the movie a little bit more than it did in, in Kubrick's version. I, I think it was served Kubrick and Kubrick's version in the way that made it famous aesthetically, you know, but in Dr. Sleep, I think it's, it's not the thing that you walk away with. Oh, that movie was so beautiful. It was shot so perfectly. The thing you come away with is the story itself and the meaning it has for you emotionally. And I think that's the difference. Well, I mean, and when I say like you can tell that it's a Flanagan film, it's not not quite from that like grand sense. But there are some like design aspects in Doctor Sleep that really make me think of things like Hill House, right? The way that some of the ghosts in these flashbacks that Dan experiences look very reminiscent of some of the ghosts in Hill House, right? Around the eyes or the way the makeup is done. And I have to imagine that Flanagan had some input in all of that stuff, right? I can sort of see a Flanagan touch or a flourish in his own way way in this as comparison to some of his yeah, own work. Yeah, right? I can see that. This is just little tags here and there. Yeah. But obviously Kubrick and Flanagan are completely different kinds of directors. Of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and for me, like attention to story and character detail is key, right? One is warm and one is cold. <laughs> exactly. You know? And so, I mean, I just two very different kinds of films from two very different directors trying to have very different end games, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. That said, Mike Flanagan painstakingly recreated the sets of the overlook from the blueprints acquired from stanley kubrick's estate (laughs) i don't doubt it yeah actually i mean i'm i'm fairly certain that flanagan while a big fan of stephen king is probably also a huge fan of kubrick's the shining well yeah but you can also tell in the making of that he's he's also just kind of a big kid you know, and yeah. he's enjoying what he's doing and he's, you know, the actors are enjoying what they're doing and everyone was having kind of a good time. You know, I, I think they were making the, I saw some sort of behind the scenes and, and they had the kid Danny writing, you know, 
writing the the remake of the trike through the hall- hallways but he also had to make a big wheel version so that he could do it <laughs> <laughs> so he's riding this man-sized version of the trike through the hallways and it was just hilarious to see and they just did that so he just spent the extra money just so that he could do that and experience it himself triking through the hallways of the shining overlook hotel it's that kind of anecdote that makes me want to meet Mike Flanagan, like even more, you know, like I, I have a lot of respect for him. I really like all in a lot of his work. And there's only one thing of his that I haven't seen, you know, and, but the rest of it, I've liked it all. I mean, he makes a movie and I just really enjoy the shit out of it. Like he's, he's a really great horror director. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the stuff that he makes in the future is going to be equally good. I think as he goes on, he gets better and better. And, you know, we certainly haven't seen the last of Flanagan and I really hope that people sort of like latch onto him and and, like give him the visionary horror title that we give to people like Wes Craven or John Carpenter. Cause I really think that he is the equivalent of that in our time now. Oh, certainly. Now I do want to do a special mention of the music by the Newton brothers, because it's kind of a, a best of, of the shining soundtrack and they did a a stellar job. They do use the heartbeat that's homage to the, the original shining, but it's much more prominently used here to increase and decrease tension. I remember, uh, noting that this is the very first time I saw this with the heartbeat kind of constantly going through these moments, you know, um, especially like when there's no other soundtrack, like Rose, in that astral moment going across the world, all you hear is just, you know, maybe a slight wind with that heartbeat going slow and then faster and faster, slower and slower, depending on the scene, you know, and I thought it was used to great stylistic effect in the, in the movie. And I think it really served the soundtrack overall, not just the music, but uh, I do, I did want to make special mention of that because I thought they did an amazing job. And I'm glad that they took some of those cues from the original Shining, right? And used some of, like you say, the best of from that movie. Uh, because when the movie first opens, and I mean, I was sitting in that dark theater with my mom, and, uh, you know, the, the first, like, musical cues from The Shining are over the title cards, right? And it was just, like... I mean, talk about like an instant nostalgia boner, you know, I mean, it was just good. And it's something that I needed in that, that first part of that movie to sort of like draw you in. And it does immediately. Right. Like, like the shining is so, you know, famous for those notes of music that, you know, from the minute they do it, you're there, you're ready for the ride. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the Newton brothers have done other horror movies too. And I cannot like put my finger on what, but I know that, like they're pretty well respected at this point, yeah. you know, in the horror community. So let's talk about the uh, overall legacy and future, starting with King's reaction. What was Stephen King's reaction to this movie? Stephen King liked this movie. Yeah, he liked it mm-hmm. a lot, actually. And you know, so when when I sort of like got the idea of what um, Flanagan was doing before I saw the movie, I thought, oh my god, Stephen King's gonna hate this, right? So he's he's not gonna like the direction that Flanagan went in. He wants a more grounded you know, faithful adaption of his novel. Right. But there's really no way to do that in this day and age, you know, and like Flanagan made the right choice. And I'm glad that Stephen King appreciates it the way that he does. Well, this makes me want to segue into our reaction at first viewing, because we knew kind of going in that he had a hard job. He had to, he had to walk the tightrope for the entire duration of this film to tie together the original material of Dr. Sleep with the Kubrickian should I say Kubrickian? Kubrickian? I mean, yeah, we can coin a word. The Kubrickian proclivity. <laughs> <laughs> 
the Kubrickian, uh, you know, stylings and and direction of the of the first film, The Shining, that deviated so much from the original material and marrying them together and reconciling the two, and he did such a beautiful job. I remember going in there with the highest of expectations and coming out just like emotional because my expectations had been blown out of the water and I was just so impressed and so happy with it, you know, that I, I just, I couldn't say enough about it at the time. And, and it's one of my favorite films of the decade, if not favorite films, you know, certainly horror films ever. Yeah. I have to completely agree with you. So, I mean, I remember watching that movie and you saw it like the night before I did. Right. (laughs) And so I, I went in and you were like, tell me what you think about it as soon as it's over. And I was just like, okay, like it's going to be good. And I was completely blown away because I I think I had like middle of the road expectations. Yeah. The trailer didn't do much for me. Yeah. You know, and I thought, you know, like I had read the book and I was like, I don't know how they're going to do it, you know. And then I was immediately like blown away by this movie. In fact, like the emotional punches in this movie were a lot like I cried in it. I had to go to the bathroom right after the movie. I was crying in the bathroom. I mean, yeah. So it was it was really, really emotional on many levels. Right. Just because as a as a fan of King and a fan of horror movies in general and the fact that they could like tie those two together, just it meant a lot to me as a horror fan. And I think that like the movie itself, the acting was good. And I mean, just everything about this movie was so incredibly fucking special. Yeah, and I just I didn't remember like what was the the movie that you know I last walked out of just loving it, just loving that cinematic experience and just wanting to go right back in and I couldn't remember and it was just such a great feeling. I'm so glad that I saw this in the theater, right? This seems like a really good theatrical movie to see, right? I mean, like, cause the music was pounding, right? Like I could feel my body shaking through some of those musical notes, right? And that's something I don't get to experience in my own house. Yeah. And um, what's really sad, though, is that there were about six of us in the movie. It was was pretty slim pickings, you know, in my theater as well. For the life of me, I don't know. I mean, we've we've gone through all the reasons why everyone thinks the movie didn't succeed, right? And they're all valid reasons, you know? But I wish that people would have, like, grasped onto it more. I wish that it would have made more money, both for the movie itself and for Flanagan's sake, right? I want him to be a viable director. I want people to go to him and want him to make product. But I'm so glad that people are watching it now, right? So, I mean, I'm I'm a member of groups on Facebook, uh, horror groups, and not a day goes by when someone doesn't, like, post about Dr. Sleep and said, have y'all seen this movie? I just watched it on HBO Max or whatever. And people are finally coming around and they're liking it. So it's not, I hope it doesn't take as long for people to grasp onto it like they did in The Shining, which took a couple years, right? And so, I mean, eventually I think that people will really sing the praises of this movie and there will be a resurgence in popularity and people will see it as sort of the masterpiece that it is. I I watched this movie for the second time only for this podcast, right? And I had talked about wanting to go watch it again immediately and I thought, no, I'm going to like give it some time because sometimes if I like a movie so much, right, that second viewing turns out to be not as good. And I'm like, okay, I was wrong. Or I had like some sort of emotional day or whatnot, but not in, not in this particular case. Yeah. I, I bought the the Blu-ray with the director's cut immediately pre-ordered. Uh, yeah, I think. I know. And so I watched the director's cut and I was like, Oh my God, it's even more perfect. And I texted you that and like, it took you this long to, that's right. 
kind of circle back to it, knowing that we were going to deep dive it, I think. so. Yeah, I knew that eventually we were going to do another episode about this movie, and I was like, I'm going to wait and, and watch it again to be fresh, right? But after this viewing, this is the kind of movie I think I'm going to be watching a lot, actually. Like, I, I don't see myself getting tired of it. My biggest regret is that when we released our top 10 horror movies of 2019, I put this at number two. Mm-hmm. And it's not. I need to revise that. Ready or Not, which was my number one horror movie of that year, is fantastic. I will stand on that. I will die on that hill. Yeah. But um, Doctor Sleep is better. I'm sorry. It's number one. Yeah, so. it's, as I was saying at the time, it's it's special. Yeah. You know? Revisit its history. I mean, like it's it's number one for sure. I have to go back and just make that perfectly clear. So, but yeah. your inner contrarian went out, and uh, <laughs> the rest is history. I also have to say that I think that Stephen King himself is starting to sort of soften to the adaptations of his own movies. Right? I don't think that he's as harsh. As well, they're he- not as shitty. <laughs> well, I mean, some of them are, though. I mean, like, for every good Stephen King movie that we get these days, there are some that are kind of not so good, right? I think we're experiencing a profound moment of, like, really good adaptations. Yeah, but we're not getting the low-budget, you know, slap-it-through Children of the Corn shit. Yeah. I mean, that's true. These are all big studio productions with, you know, a lot of you know, thought behind them. But I think even now, I mean, he has a whole program where he's like, you can buy the rights to something for a buck. And he's like, just go make the movie. Right. See, I actually reached out to him about 15 years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. And tried to make the long walk and they reached out to Stephen King is not interested in whatever, like, you know, creating adaptations of this time. So yeah, that was like 2000, you know, two or three. I mean, if we look at like the the remake of Pet Cemetery recently, right? It it had some big changes in it, and he liked that too, you know. So I think that if if you're willing to do something fresh and different, and still like sort of like hold on to the heart of his original work, he's not so mad about it. Kubrick didn't do that; he completely changed his work, and you know he was pissed. I just I think at this point Stephen King maybe is just like I've written so many things, right? And people are going to do what they will with it. He's finally been able to like sort of grasp onto the idea that I think authors need to do. Mm-hmm. It's like you write it and you release it and that's it. Like your part is done and the way that people interpret it is on their own accord. And I think he's finally made peace with sort of that. He's he's taken a Dan Torrance route and he's made peace with things. Yeah. Well, so that's fine. So I've got some fun facts for you. Okay, Liam Mommy. So Ewan McGregor, Dan Stevens, Uh-oh. Chris Evans, <laughs> Matt Smith, and Jeremy Renner were all considered and had met with uh, the director for the lead role. And of course, Ewan McGregor ended up being cast with Stephen King's blessing. Okay, so when you were li- like listing off all those actors' names, I had the dirtiest fucking fantasy in my head. Oh. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Dan Stevens, Chris Evans, Jeremy. No, see, I can't see Jeremy Renner. I can't see Chris Evans. I don't know who Matt Smith is. He Remind was Doctor me. Who. Whatever. So I would say Dan Stevens or Ian McGregor. Yeah, I mean, and Dan Stevens is a little too dreamy for that. A little I mean, too like, young. Yeah, like you McGregor is probably the best. He's out of all those. and he's like our age. He's he's like forty. Or close to 40, but he still looks like he's like in his 20s or something. He's got so a Paul Rudd like, thing going on. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I mean, that's that's an odd list. Chris Evans, for sure. There's no way in the world I could yeah. see him doing that. Of course, interestingly, Ewan McGregor is roughly the same age, less than two years older as Danny Lloyd, who played Danny Torrance in the original Shining. Wow, that's neat. He is also five years older 
than Jack Nicholson was when he made the original film. Oh. Even though he looks way younger. Jack Nicholson never looked young. (laughs) (laughs) So according to director Mike Flanagan, the performance of Jacob Tremblay during the first take of his death scene was so intense that it surprised and scared the other actors, including Rebecca Ferguson, who was so horrified that she was stammering and couldn't get her lines out. When the scene was over, a grinning Tremblay jumped up, covered in fake blood, high-fived his father, and walked over to the craft service to get a snack, leaving Ferguson and the rest of the cast (laughs) shell shocked and traumatized god bless that little boy i mean like really i said earlier that he's he's a gifted actor and he has a long career ahead of him he's worked with flanagan before right yeah and i mean so he he's just good and when he's in movies and he's so young it's just it's flabbergasting to me but i can totally see this he commits to a role but he's one of those actors even as a kid he's like done like yep. scenes over finished And everyone else is like, what the fuck? You know, I mean, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple of these are just like an interesting tidbits to me. So like on Abra's refrigerator, there's a drawing of a rose. And on the shelf above Abra's bed, there's a rose. And her toys are placed in a position that spell out the words hat. What? I didn't in her bedroom. That. Yeah. So this could be like foreshadowing of her battle with Rose the Hat and hints that Abra's shining might have actually been trying to prepare her for the encounter. Oh, my God. I love that. Mm hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Also, the shot of the bloody elevators in Dr. Sleep is actually a fully digital recreation. It was necessary to change Kubrick's angle from the floor and bring the camera up to Rose's height and further away and took months to complete to make it look photorealistic. Really? But not a year like it took Kubrick? Yep. Yep. (laughs) Get that shit done faster. So, yeah. And as Dan uh, begins approaching the gold room, the mirror from Flanagan's Oculus is uh, hanging in the hallway on the right. I did not know this. And listeners, we're just going to share a little something with you. Like Chris usually holds these fun facts close to the chest and I do not cheat on documents. I want to be surprised by all this, but I got over here today to record this episode and he just had to show me and he, he put that, he showed that scene and there's a mirror on the wall. And I was like, Oculus, like immediately, like I I'd never noticed it before. Yeah, I said, does this mirror remind you of like the laser glass, you know? <laughs> I just like, I'm surprised because I mean, once you pointed it out, I mean, immediately it like, it struck me and I just, I'm kicking myself for not being a good fan again of the Flanagan and like <laughs> picking that out immediately. Fanagan. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, it would make so much sense, you know, if the Lasser glass was actually from the Shining Hotel. <laughs> I mean, it really would. I hope there's like, maybe it's the actual thing, like powering the whole hotel. You never know. <laughs> oh my God. I want to watch. I need to rewatch that movie again too. It's so good. So my last one, uh, the makeup process was rather tedious and agonizing experience for Sally Hooks as she had to stand up while, you know, makeup was being applied for, you know, her as the ghost of 237, right? Mm -hmm. And it's often it took up to five hours. It was essentially a bodysuit. And so she always felt like she was fully clothed. So she would walk around the set and get food from the craft area, not knowing (laughs) that she was making other people sick as they tried to eat. (laughs) Was she walking around with like gross corpsey tits? He's flopping around. Yeah. <laughs> she would go to the kids and say hi to the kids. Like, I guess. Hi. <laughs> well, hi there. <laughs> so she would get like robes handed to her and stuff, you know, just so people wouldn't get grossed out or like stare at her. Oh my God. So it's like second skin for real. That's yeah. amazing. I don't even know. I think if I saw someone doing that on set, I would just probably go sit next to her. I'm sure. Yeah. 
Those were fun. It made me laugh. Uh, and think of Dan Stevens, which is always a good thing. <laughs> but uh, we have some questions to ask about Dr. Sleep, like we do about every movie we cover here on the Film Flamers. And we'll start with, is Dr. Sleep a horror movie, or would you consider it more horror-adjacent? It's horror. It's a horror movie. Yeah. I think much like Flanagan was trying to straddle the line between, you know, novel and original adaptation, I sort of straddle the line on this one, right? I think I can go either way. There are some moments that are very definitely horror, but a lot of it for me is a really, really dark, like fantasy movie. Yeah, you've got like vampires and you've got blood and guts and ghosts, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything that that entails and all the drama and tension that that entails. And, you know, all this other stuff, this heart, this warmth is not really super normal for the mainstream horror genre but it still doesn't mean it's not horror or even horror adjacent to me yeah i mean i i still would consider it to be a horror movie like first and foremost it's definitely not missing anything to be a horror movie is no. that it has other things in it too exactly which is fine it is more than a horror movie it is an every man's movie i don't know is that even <laughs> like a thing so uh so were you scared while watching dr sleep um that's the thing you know a lot of people aren't scared in dr sleep my sister's main complaint uh actually about dr sleep was that she wasn't scared in it and that's kind of a litmus test for her you know for horror movies if they they don't scare her then they're not good or they're not horror movies Mm -hmm. you know and uh for me i don't care because almost nothing scares me and that's not a boast it just is you know um there's moments that creep me out. There's concepts, you know, I get, I get, you know, wrapped up in tension just like anyone else, you know, but as far as like getting scared, like shut my eyes, shut my ears, turn, turn the TV off. No, there's only one movie in recent memory that kind of did that to me. And I, even then I didn't stop it, you know, or cover my eyes or ears, but that was terrified. Yeah. Scary ass fucking movie. Um, you know, I, I do get scared easily and that's why I like horror movies. I I appreciate the feeling of being scared and I, I'm happy that I get scared easily. Um, and that scene where they were torturing Jacob Tremblay got to me the first time that I watched it. And on this viewing too, I was sitting by myself in the living room, like watching this and I was just as horrified watching that boy get tortured. I think it's a masterfully directed and cut horror scene that is so effective and so scary. And um, yeah, I mean, like it's, I think that most people would walk away from that, at least being a little disturbed, you know, on some level. Right. And I think that's important to have in a horror movie. So yeah, I was definitely scared. Um, out of five stars, what would you rate Dr. Sleep? Five stars. I also would rate it five stars. Did you rate it five stars during the hot take? I believe so. I can't remember. I know that I did for sure. And like, I, I think you did too. I think this is one of those movies that we both agree on that we think is just like just almost perfect. I think that we both agree that it's a movie that we'll watch again and again and again forever and ever and ever. Yeah. If you wanted to say it that way, I would echo that, but I would also caveat that by saying there, there is no such thing as perfect to me, but it's perfect mm. to me. Yeah. We like it a lot. Yeah. We like it a great deal. So finally, and um, I would say most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Dr. Sleep? Dave. The dad. Abra's dad, yeah. Yeah, he was he was hot. He was streamy. I don't even think I need to answer this question at this point, right? I think who who's the hottest guy for me? Oh, if it's Billy. Yeah. 
Cliff Curtis. Yeah. On the way. I love Cliff Curtis. If you're listening, and I'll just go ahead and tag you on our post on this, maybe. I mean, just slide into my DMs, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Worth a shot. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Dr. Sleep. And we definitely want to know what you think about this one. Um, maybe a lot of people have not seen this movie. And we want to know if you have and what you think about it. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You can call us on our hotline at 972-666-7733 or email us at tiredqueensatfilmflamers.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. We want to hear your voice, guys. Call in. Um, we like to read our reviews on Shooting the Flames. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, head over there and give us a five-star rating and a little snippet of why you like us. We'll read that review on Shooting the Flames, and it really helps us out. It's possibly the best gift you could give us. It really does. And if you want to join us over on Patreon, we're actually covering Children of the Corn over there this month. And if you pay as little as $2 a month, you can get access to all of that bonus content as well as a lot of our episodes as many as uh, days and weeks early. That's right. We have a growing family over there. Lots of conversation going on. So head over there and check it out. This also wraps up our episodes for January, but we have more things coming for you next month. It's the month of love. And like always, we're going to be talking about a little horror movies, you know, with some like love adjacency to them. Yeah. So we're going to cover Ghost. That's right. You in danger, girl. (laughs) We had so much fun last February talking about the bodyguard that we're going full on horror adjacent again. Talking about ghosts. But then we're going to come straight back to horror with the loved ones. Which I've never seen. So I'm super looking forward to that. Excited for you to see it. Well, listeners, thank you for letting us gush about Dr. Sleep and Mike Flynn again. And until next time, sweet dreams. I love how The Shining is like super quotable, right? But the only quote I can think of from Dr. Sleep is, well, hi there. He's oh, <laughs> like, you seem to know more of them. You're talking about like the drink takes the man or whatever. I yeah. Mean, like, yeah. A man takes a drink, a drink takes a drink, a drink takes a man. That's right. I it's just medicine. Pop. Yeah. And that's from, uh, that's from the original book rather mm-hmm. than The Shining. So it is. Yeah. Well, hi there. Well, bye there. <laughs> <laughs>